This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 159th edition of the program. Today is September 6th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support the program, and that includes Eric Baker, Julian Gamma, Catherine Barber, Michael Cuomo, and Thomas F. Dwyer. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support, or you could check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on this jam-packed episode, Republican Ron DeSantis ran the dumbest political ad ever, and then Ted Cruz saw Ron's ad and said, hold my beer, because he then tried to out-stupid Ron DeSantis by running an ad attacking his opponent, Beto O'Rourke, for using profanity. A Republican thinks Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's message is scary to voters. We'll talk about all of the war criminals in attendance at John McCain's funeral. Additionally, we'll discuss the likelihood that Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed given the Democratic Party's inability and unwillingness to resist Republican pressure. Also on the program, I'll give you a breakdown of the debate between Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon, and we'll talk about a pundit's implication that Cynthia Nixon's campaign is comparable to Hillary Clinton's. Also, Donna Brazile wrote an op-ed complaining about the DNC's vote to end superdelegates, and we got news that she's teaming up with Sarah Palin, of all people, in order to, quote, bridge the political divide. John Kerry isn't ruling out a 2020 run. The human rights campaign shunned another LGBTQ progressive running for Congress. Prisoners across the country have gone on a strike demanding better conditions for all prisoners. We'll talk about the good news and bad news that came out this week regarding net neutrality, and that includes California's decision to finally pass their strongest net neutrality laws in the country, which is a huge victory. But we got some bad news because the FCC Inspector General ended its investigation of Ajit Pai and concluded that he is innocent. And finally, my guests this week include comedian Ron Placone and founder of Connect the Dots USA, Andrea Witt. Oh, so that is a lot. We've got so much to get to. I need to pace myself because this is going to be a very long show. By the end of it, I'm sure I will not be able to talk. And probably towards, you know, the last couple of segments, I'm not going to be saying anything coherent at all. So let's just go ahead and... um. try to get through it. For those of you who don't know, the reason why I'm doing an extra long episode is because there will be no show next week because it is my one year wedding anniversary and I will be taking the week off. So in order to make sure I have enough content every single day for YouTube, I am, I'm recording a very, very long episode. So let's do it. You guys, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Hopefully it's good. So at this point, I think it's safe to say that Donald Trump isn't even trying to pretend anymore that he gives a single shit about workers because he just did something unilaterally 
that screws over thousands of federal workers across the country. So as Kevin Liptak of CNN reports, President Donald Trump told lawmakers on Thursday he wants to scrap a pay raise for civilian federal workers, saying the nation's budget couldn't support it. In a letter to House and Senate leaders, Trump described the pay increase as inappropriate. We must maintain efforts to put our nation on a fiscally sustainable course, and federal agency budgets cannot sustain such increases, the president wrote. An across-board 2.1 pay increase for federal workers was slated to take effect in January. In addition, a yearly adjustment of paychecks based on the region of the country where a worker is posted, the locality pay increase was due to take effect. I have determined that for 2019, both across-the-board pay increases and locality pay increases will be set at zero, he wrote. So... It was a measly 2.1% that federal workers would have gotten, and he said, nope, we can't do that because it's fiscally irresponsible. He said, quote, it was inappropriate. Now understand that he wants to get our nation on a fiscally sustainable course, but what did he just do less than a year ago? He just passed a tax cut. He signed a tax cut into law that gave trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans. We just increased military spending by $70 billion. We can afford that. We can afford death and destruction, but giving federal workers a cost of living wage? Nah, we can't afford it. So understand that there's a clear theme emerging with this president. When it comes to things that would help you, that would help workers, average Americans, we can't afford it. But when it comes to the military, the military-industrial complex, killing individuals in the Middle East and North Africa, we always have the money for that. But you? We don't have the money for you. Does anybody truly buy into this facade of him being a straight shooter who cares about the working class? I mean, these are working class people who he is screwing over here. They may be federal workers, but they're civilian federal workers. And like everyone else, they depend on yearly pay increases because as the cost of living increases, then of course their wages should increase to accommodate that. And unbeknownst to a lot of liberals, President Barack Obama actually did the same exact thing in 2010, and he used pretty much the same excuse that Donald Trump is using now. You know, he was concerned about the deficit. He thought that it would be fiscally irresponsible to give workers a tiny marginal pay raise. So they're all going to tell you that they care about workers, but when push comes to shove, They'll abandon them almost immediately and they'll cite the budget and say that, you know, we we just we can't afford it. But at the same time, they can always find money for other priorities. And it's just so aggravating to see the same trend continue throughout administrations and across party lines. But getting back to Trump, he thinks that this is going to help the economy, but it hurts the economy. And right now he's just, you know, he's sailing in on this great economy and boasting always at every chance he gets about how phenomenal this economy is doing. And sure, it's true that the stock market is performing exceptionally well at this moment. But the problem is purchasing power for Americans, it's going down. And that is really, really harmful for all Americans. 
really harmful. And he says that the reason why we have to do trickle-down economics and pass tax cuts for the rich is because that wealth will trickle down. And last year, what did we see in December and January? We saw a number of companies give their workers a one-time bonus of $1,000. I want you all to watch very closely and see if that happens again. Watch closely and see if Home Depot gives their workers another $1,000 raise this Christmas. See if Walmart does anything. See if any of these companies that gave their workers a bonus last year are going to do it again. Well, of course not, because nobody's paying attention to the tax cut. Nobody's talking about it, so of course they're not going to do that. That was all PR. You don't need any more evidence that he doesn't give a flying fuck about workers. He's a jackass. He's rich, he was born into wealth, and he can never even imagine or fathom what it could possibly be like to live paycheck to paycheck. It is the case that Congress can override him, We'll see what happens. It's not necessarily all said and done yet that workers are definitely screwed, federal workers, but just the mere fact that he chose to go out of his way and tell them, no, you don't get this 2.1% raise, even though I just gave myself a huge tax cut, you can't get this 2.1% raise because, uh, you know, we can't afford it. We need that money for the military to kill people, not to help you. What a despicable individual who really is the embodiment of how backwards our priorities are in the United States. It's been clear that Fox News and Republicans have gone out of their way to look for anything they could possibly attack progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for because they're scared of her. She has very popular policies and politically she poses a threat to them. And a Republican congressman from Kansas named Roger Marshall went on Fox News and touched on just how frightening she actually is. But he claims that it's not politicians that she's scaring Rather, he contends that she's scaring voters. Now again, to give you a sense of how absurd this is, remember that all of her policies, with the exception of Abolish ICE, are overwhelmingly popular, but nonetheless, he says that she's scaring voters and her speaking is actually helping the GOP. So should the GOP be embracing her message as well? This might surprise you. Our next guest says yes. Republican Congressman Roger Marshall joins us live to explain why. Sir, please explain. Well, good morning, first of all, from Manhattan, Kansas. Why is this? When, when Miss Ocasio-Cortez came to Kansas along with Bernie, and when Kansans heard their story, their story of control, that Kansans woke up and said, my gosh, this scares us. This scares us to death. So it helps contrast the, the, the party of the Republican Party where we want to give you choices versus the Democrat socialist platform of control. So I, our numbers are actually gone up since they came and visited. Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard a Republican or a conservative pundit say that they want Ocasio-Cortez to speak more because she's only helping the conservative cause because she's going to turn off voters to socialism and progressivism. But this is a horribly misguided argument to make because, again, her policies are 
populist when you look at the issues that she is promoting medicare for all a tuition-free public colleges and universities a federal jobs guarantee legalizing marijuana these are ideas that the overwhelming majority of americans support in fact a majority of republicans now support medicare for all albeit it may be a slim majority but it's a majority nonetheless but still they're contending that her ideas are great for them and they want her to continue speaking because she's only helping republicans well i really really want them to keep thinking this and i hope that this idea continues to circulate you know around republican circles because <laughs> they're digging their own grave now i do want to get to what else he said um because some of the specific things that he said here really harken back to the old days of republican rhetoric where they try to invoke this big government boogeyman and that liberals are all socialists and they want to take away everything from you um so he states that the republican party quote wants to give you choices whereas democrats want to control you now Again, this is a talking point that's so tired, and the reason why it doesn't really work anymore is because Republicans have contradicted this notion countless times. They've proven that they are more controlling than Democrats, even if it's the case that you can point to Democrats wanting stricter gun laws as one example of them being more controlling. Well, by and large, Republicans are more controlling because Republicans want to outright ban abortion and many still want to abolish marriage equality. Republicans also throw a tantrum at the mere thought of a transgender person using the bathroom of their choice. They refuse to get on board with marijuana legalization, and this guy is trying to pretend as if the Republicans are the pro-freedom party, and they don't want to control everything that you're doing? I mean, who actually believes this? I can't find a single conservative who even would believe this nonsense. They might tell you this, but deep down, I don't think anyone who's a serious person can believe this rhetoric because it's just rhetoric. It's nonsensical. And look, if you truly want to prove to us that as conservatives, you are pro-freedom and you are less inclined to uh, control citizens than Democrats, then there's easily some policies you can endorse. You could support marijuana legalization. That's a libertarian policy. You can support a public option because even if you don't support publicly funded health care, you can at least give voters that option, which increases the amount of choices we have because i mean you said that you are in favor of increasing choices and freedom so why won't you support these policies well i'll tell you why it's because he's full of shit and there was a point in this interview where they asked him about medicare for all and for him we're supposed to really believe him because this is a former doctor so he supposedly has more credibility on the subject of healthcare. well listen to what he says and it's going to become evident really quickly just how full of shit he is you were a practicing doctor for a number of years sir uh tell us as far as socialized medicine goes what would that do to the quality of health care for everybody in this country if single payer was implemented well, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as Medicare for all. Uh, if they would implement their plan, it would be the end of Medicare as we know it. Our seniors' health care would go down as we'd be shifting a lot of those dollars to other people uh, instead of saving those money for the seniors that, that it's been meant to serve. You know, additionally, if, if you're a, a mom, you would have less choices where you would take your kids, where you would take your parents, what hospital to. It would look a lot more like Medicaid or perhaps like our veterans' uh, administration hospitals from four years ago mm. when there was a six-month wait. So uh, it would be the end of health care as we know it. If you, have, if you get your health insurance through your employer, it would be the end of that. And I think three-fourths of us are actually pretty happy with their health care. It's just very expensive right now. As a former doctor, that was a surprisingly incoherent response. 
he is implying not so subtly that Americans prefer to get health insurance through their employers. But here's a problem with that. If you lose your job, if you get laid off, guess what happens? You also lose your health insurance. That's a problem. That creates instability when it comes to healthcare. And Americans don't want instability. They want more stability. But again, he's out of touch. He doesn't get it. And he also said that, you know, if you adopt Medicare for all, the quality of healthcare will go down. And certainly the Fox host asked that and, and framed it as a leading question. But he's just factually incorrect because according to the World Health Organization, we are ranked 37 when it comes to healthcare, we're not number one. And according to the Commonwealth Fund, the U.S.'s healthcare system is ranked last in the developed world. You heard me right. We are ranked last when compared with 11 other countries with some sort of single payer government run healthcare system. And they do better than us when it comes to administrative efficiency, equity, access, and health outcomes. And our system doesn't just yield worse outcomes when it comes to healthcare, but we actually spend more than other countries who guarantee healthcare to all citizens. And I already said this earlier in the segment, but Medicare for all isn't just the superior option, it's also the more popular option, and his own constituents, Republicans, guess what? They're on our side now. A Reuters Ipsos poll found that 51.9% of Republicans now support Medicare for all. So you are losing this battle. Even your own base doesn't believe the bullshit that you're espousing. But because he's a doctor, theoretically speaking, he should know more about this than anyone, right? Which is why they asked him this question. Well, let me ask you this though. Who are you going to believe? Canadian doctors who actually stand by their country's single-payer system or a former doctor turned Republican politician who took almost $100,000 in PAC money from health industry professionals who, unsurprisingly, happen to be his biggest donors. I mean, who are you going to believe in this situation? Someone who is bought off by the health industry, which is an industry that has a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, or Canadian doctors and just facts, empirical reality? I'll go with the latter rather than the former in this situation. So clearly, this is another instance where Fox News is trying to fearmonger about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Republicans are claiming that her getting this national platform is really beneficial to the conservative cause, but unfortunately for these imbeciles, that is just not the case. But of course, I want them to continue believing this because in reality, the more they talk, the more they help the progressive cause because they look like morons when they try to fearmonger about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and they look like the disingenuous shills that they are when they attack single payer with the hackiest arguments ever that can be easily debunked if you just do a quick Google search. So the Republican Party has no argument and as a result, they are forced to lie in order to get ahead but unfortunately for them progressives are winning this debate your own base doesn't believe you anymore your own base believes progressives and agrees with us that medicare for all is the right way to go so um keep your mongering keep lying and using the same rehashed talking points from the last 30 years because clearly it's helping us in a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, 
We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly dose of stupidity. Marco Rubio and the snake. Little frat boy here. All right, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, who are you, man? Yeah, who is sure. this guy? I swear to God, yeah, I don't you know who you are, man. Platforming. Tens of millions of views. InfoWars. Bigger than Rush Limbaugh. He knows who InfoWars well, is. But Playing this joke over here. That's why yeah, the deplatforming didn't work. But, but, yeah, but here, here's, here's the question. Here's a question. Hey, don't touch me again, man. I'm asking you not to touch me. Well, sure, I'm just bad at you nicely. I know, but I don't want to be... I don't know oh, you, you want me to get arrested? I don't know who you are. It's not just going to take my First Amendment. You're not going to get arrested, man. You're not going to get arrested. I'll take care Oh, he'll beat me up. Take my first amendment. Oh, oh, he'll beat me up. That escalated quickly. I didn't say that. I know I am, but he's so mad. You're not going to silence me. You're not going to silence me. Well, but, but, there are, but there are people. You are like you are literally like a little gangster thug. There, are, there are people in this. The Democrats are raping the Republicans. Because at some point someone the has Democrats to make a determination. What's the difference between you know misinformation from abroad? And differences of opinion within the United yeah, States. Yeah, and that's, that's happening a very here. fine line, and that's something we need to be careful about. We don't overreach in that direction. But then he doesn't know so about InfoWars being banned. He doesn't know about the to top news story in the country. About how they, uh, not just how they how they apply that within the United States, Infowars. but they don't become agents of authoritarian regimes abroad to crack down on free speech. Because I wonder why Rubio got so mad at me and threatened, a, threatened me there's physically. There's a balance between huh? um, what is free speech and what people disagree on. Poor Rubio. Guys, I'm sorry, we gotta get it. Yeah, man, I gotta go to the committee. Exactly. You guys can talk to this clown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look at this little frat boy. So cool. Go well, back to your bathhouse. Ha! Got him! Compromise at the bathhouses. Gay, 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 gay. There goes Rubio, a little punk. I'm gonna beat you up. I'm Marco Rubio. MILF porn aficionado Ted Cruz released one of the most cringeworthy ads yet against his opponent, Beto O'Rourke, because all he did in this ad was criticize Beto for using profanity. That's literally all the ad was about, and I'm not kidding. Beto O'Rourke wants to be a senator. F*** that. So, he's showing up across Texas, sharing his wit. How f***ed up is that? His wisdom. What the f*** are these guys doing? and his character. I really f***ed up. If Beto shows up in your town, maybe keep the kids at home. Because this is f***ed up. Beto O'Rourke, he's showing the f*** up. So, as a right-winger who has quite literally referred to the left as snowflakes for b being uh, too politically correct, he didn't even bother to pretend that he's not a hypocrite and released this ad against his opponent because his opponent is not being politically correct enough and is using too many swear words. 
I mean, if the tonsil stone snacking and liking MILF porn on his public Twitter page wasn't enough, then this has got to put him over the top. I mean, at, at what point do we all come together as a society on both the left and the right and say, we hate you, Ted Cruz. And as I watched this ad, I couldn't help but be reminded of another robotic politician who also criticized their opponent for using naughty words. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. And you can tell them to go themselves. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. When Mexico sends its people, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. Uh, blood coming out of her, wherever. You gotta see this guy. Ah, oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. Our children and grandchildren will look back at this time, at the choices we are about to make, the goals we will strive for, the principles we will live by, and we need to make sure that they can be proud of us. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. I mean, it's the same ad, but for a different party. <laughs> Ted Cruz is such an idiot, and because he's so hateable, because he's so idiotic, when he released this ad, the internet decided to do what the internet always does whenever Ted Cruz pretty much does anything, dunk on him and just mock him relentlessly. So Ted Cruz tweeted out the ad saying, a lighthearted reminder, a hashtag Labor Day picnic is a great place to bring the kids, a better O'Rourke rally, not so much. And Glowing Orb responded saying, every ad Ted Cruz and the Texas GOP put out makes me like Beto even more. <laughs> Ashley Feinberg says, Ted Cruz, my young daughters and sons follow you for good wholesome content. Can you please explain this? <laughs> he is never going to live that down and we absolutely should not let him. Uh, Henry Koffel says, so Texans don't curse, eat hamburgers, or play guitar? Are you running for Sunday school teacher? And then probably my favorite, Zombie Buffet tweeted out a cartoon of Ted Cruz shining Trump's shoes because that is uh, pretty accurate. And there's so much more where that came from, but I actually want to stop there and get to another story about Ted Cruz where he was once again mocked, this time by Parkland shooter survivor David Hogg. So according to HuffPost's Mary Pappenfuss, Parkland school shooting survivor and gun control activist David Hogg helped raise $9,700 in less than 24 hours in a plan to finance a billboard display of President Donald Trump's tweets attacking Senator Ted Cruz. The idea is to pay for a mobile billboard of one or two tweets and move it to several locations in Texas to maximize visibility and impact, said the GoFundMe post about the project. And to show you how that would look, here is an example of a Trump tweet from 2016 about Ted Cruz where he says, Why would the people of Texas support Ted Cruz when he has accomplished absolutely nothing for them? He is another all-talk, no-action politician. But as David Hogg pointed out, there's plenty of tweets for them to choose from about Donald Trump calling Cruz a liar or accusing him of breaking the law, quite literally. So, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Ted Cruz has got to be the most hateable, goofiest, and smarmy politician ever. He eats tonsil stones on national television. He likes pornographic tweets from his public Twitter account. He is now language policing his opponent after speaking out against political correctness. 
And the face, quite frankly, I feel uncomfortable with this big of a picture of Ted Cruz. I don't want to look at it because it just it creeps me out being this close to me. Like I'm getting really creepy vibes and uh, going to have to end the segment because I, I can't deal with it up. <laughs> I mean, if, if Ted Cruz loses this race, which is very possible, if Beto beats him, I think all of us will be so happy. And it's not, to, you know, that's not to say that Beto was the best politician ever. I think he needs to get on board with Medicare for All, co-sponsor HR 676, stop making up bullshit excuses. But I mean, it's Beto O'Rourke and it, he's going up against Ted Cruz. I would pretty much vote for any politician over Ted Cruz, pretty much any one of them. So if you live in Texas, what are you doing? Vote for Beto O'Rourke. He's obviously superior to Ted Cruz. A potato would be superior to Ted Cruz. So um, I really, really hope Ted Cruz loses because, quite frankly, I'm just so sick of looking at his face. I think we all are. Ron DeSantis is the Republican Party's gubernatorial nominee for the state of Florida, and he will be facing off against progressive Andrew Gillum, who has the backing of Bernie Sanders. And recently, you probably heard about Ron DeSantis because he made national headlines for his now infamous racist and, quite frankly, idiotic comment that he made on Fox News. The last thing we need to do is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda. So, I mean, you heard what he said. He didn't stutter. Do I really need to go over the historical implications here? White racists would compare blacks to monkeys in order to dehumanize them. And he knew exactly what he was doing and saying there. So, he is a racially insensitive prick, but... Perhaps more interesting about Ron DeSantis is in learning about his insensitivity, we're learning about him more generally speaking, and it's very clear that he is a moron because he released perhaps the dumbest political ad I've ever seen, and I've seen some doozies, but he made an ad with zero policy substance whatsoever. He essentially released an ad just kissing Donald Trump's ass, and it was really really stupid and i'm just realizing this now but there's actually a donald trump duck with trump's hair i mean <laughs> there there's multiple layers of stupidity embedded in this ad so take a look everyone knows my husband ron DeSantis is endorsed by president trump but he's also an amazing dad ron loves playing with the kids build the wall he reads stories then mr trump said you're fired I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. I just thought you should know. Ron DeSantis for governor. That was just completely embarrassing. Why would you, if you're running to be the governor of a state, why would you release an ad that says nothing about you? You're just kissing Donald Trump's ass. I mean, how embarrassing. Have you <laughs> no like policies that you care about? Do you not think, well, maybe I want the voters of Florida to know this about me. So stupid.
I mean, it, it boggles my mind, and I know what people are going to say. Mike, the only reason why you dislike this ad is because you dislike Donald Trump, but if somebody running, you know, did this same type of ad with Bernie Sanders, you'd be thrilled with it. No, I wouldn't. In fact, I would make fun of them if they did an ad just saying, I love Bernie Sanders, because that's fucking dumb. Who would do that? Because in saying you love this politician, you're not telling us anything about yourself, just that you're a kiss-ass. And in fact, to show you how absurd it would be if we flipped it and made it about Bernie Sanders, I went ahead and recreated an ad that would be comparable in the event I were running and I made an ad about how much I love Bernie Sanders. Everyone knows that my husband, Mike Figueredo, is endorsed by Bernie Sanders, but he's also an amazing dad. Mike loves playing with his cat. So I need you to tell me which one is the corporate Democrat who takes money from Wall Street. Go ahead, pick. Perfect. He reads stories. Despite the modest gains of the Affordable Care Act, 35 million Americans continue to lack health insurance, and many more are underinsured. He's teaching Madison to talk. Say, we need to break up the big bugs. People say he's all Bernie, but he's much more. And then President Bernie said, now healthcare is gonna be alright. Stop biting this. I just thought you should know. Mike Fettuccini for The Humanist Report. Do you see what I mean? (laughs) If you want to make an effective ad, you need to actually tell people what you stand for. But you see, Ron DeSantis doesn't stand for anything. He's a corporate hooker. And all he wants to do is get in there and do the bidding of his right-wing billionaire donors and do the bidding of multinational corporations. That's all he wants to do. So... I'm not even going to be mad here at this because I want him to keep face planting, keep opening your mouth, Ron, keep saying idiotic things, keep releasing ads that are just downright cringeworthy because you're only making it that much more likely that a progressive like Andrew Gillum will get elected and Floridian voters will actually have someone who cares about them. Hearings for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh began this week And rather than boycotting these hearings altogether, Democrats attended the hearings and demanded that the confirmation process in general be delayed since they haven't been able to view thousands of documents about Kavanaugh. Now, there are a number of problems inherent with this type of strategy, the most prominent of which being that they're pushing for a delay on the grounds that they haven't seen these documents. But they should be against this process based on principle, because if you just look back a couple of years ago, what did Republicans do? They stole a Supreme Court seat from President Obama. So you shouldn't be saying, I want to delay this until I can see documents. You should just say, I want to delay this until we have another presidential election, given what the Republicans just did. They shamelessly stole a Supreme Court seat. You're supposed to expect us now to have a normal process after you guys just threw all the norms with regard to this process out the window? Fuck out of here. But they're not doing that. They are attending the hearings. And even if it's the case that they may have made these hearings relatively chaotic and were tough on Kavanaugh, 
Well, it would have made a more powerful statement had they just boycotted the hearings altogether. However, there are a lot of, let's face it, 2020-minded Democrats that would never miss out on an opportunity to make headlines about just how tough they were, you know, on Kavanaugh and pressed him on issues X, Y, and Z, you know, ahead of the 2020 Democratic Party primary. And really, this should be easy for them because he already made an ass of himself at the first day of hearings. He refused to shake the hand of a Parkland victim's father just straight up refused, turned around, did this shamelessly, and I don't know how you can do that, but clearly it shows how smug and condescending he is. So, I mean, the argument that they should be making really is self-evident. One, Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat. Never, ever, ever stop talking about this. And two, look at the way he carried himself. He shouldn't have even had this hearing, but if you're wondering just how long you know, this we're going to stand firm act is going to hold for Democrats and just how well they're going to do at resisting. Well, there's a story that came out recently that demonstrates just how little they care about resisting in actuality. As Jennifer Bendery and Igor Bobik of the HuffPost reports, Democrats just confirmed lots of Trump judges so they could skip town. In other words, we're almost certainly screwed. Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed and nobody will be surprised about how quickly it happens. So the authors go on to write, Senate Democrats just gave a huge gift to President Donald Trump. They agreed to expedite votes on 15 of his nominees to lifetime federal court seats because they wanted to go home. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had lined up votes for all those district court nominees last week. Normally, Senate rules require up to 30 hours of waiting time for each nominee, something Democrats typically take advantage of to delay action on confirming Trump judges. But Minority Leader Chuck Chuck Schumer cut a deal with McConnell on Tuesday to bypass the wait times and let them all get through. Why? So Democrats could get back to campaigning and focusing on winning re-election in November. The Senate is now out of session until next Tuesday. Of the 15 nominees, six were confirmed by voice votes on Tuesday. Another one was confirmed on a recorded vote. The remaining eight will get quick votes next week. It's a major win for Trump and McConnell, whose number one priority is filling up federal courts with conservative judges, many of whom are incredibly anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ rights, and anti-voting rights. Trump has gotten 26 circuit court judges confirmed, more than any other president at this point in his term. Another way of putting it, one in seven U.S. circuit court seats is now filled by a judge nominated by Trump. To add to that, Trump put Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court and is poised to get another justice through, Brett Kavanaugh. And you've got a president drastically reshaping the nation's courts for generations. Some progressives are furious that Democrats just handed more judges to Trump, particularly given recent revelations implicating the president in federal crimes. It would have taken only one Democratic senator to say no to letting the nominees through this week, but none did. Okay, so we are looking at a disaster on our hands. Brett Kavanaugh is going to get through. <laughs> He's absolutely going to get through. We're going to see great stories about how Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were super tough on Kavanaugh. And there's going to be, you know, some epic clapbacks by Amy Klobuchar, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, Trump will win and get what he wants. And Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed. I hope with everything in me that I am wrong here. 
and that I'll come out with a video saying I stand corrected. Democrats proved, proved me wrong. But I just have zero hope. And that last sentence of this article really is telling that all it took was one Senate Democrat to say no and they would have stopped this. So do you know what that means? Even Bernie Sanders failed us here. Any progressive? Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. And when I say progressive, you know, people who want to prove that they're progressive is namely what I'm talking about. Uh, Amy Klobuchar. Any one of them could have said no. None of them did. So this is the level of resistance that we're going to see with regard to Brett Kavanaugh. This is a snapshot as to what we can expect. And again, look at the way he carried himself. To not even shake someone's hand, even if you didn't know that that was a Parkland victim's father, which I'm assuming he didn't, to just shun someone in front of all the cameras, I mean, that really takes guts. That shows how smug this individual is. So, it's not looking good. It is absolutely not looking good. We're going to have a conservative majority, possibly for decades. I'm out of hope, you know, and I think most people are. Nobody's really expecting, nobody that I know or I've talked to is expecting Democrats to put up a strong enough fight. It's just, it's, it's like the most they can do is delay the inevitable. But at this point, I am fully expecting Brett Kavanaugh to be confirmed. And I hope I'm wrong, but odds are I'm going to be right. So over the weekend, John McCain's funeral took place and... Overall, it turned out to be the biggest gathering of American war criminals I think we've ever seen. Because you had individuals like George W. Bush attend his funeral and give a eulogy. And George W. Bush should not be able to attend anyone's funeral because he should be in prison right now for committing crimes against humanity. Because as you all know, he led us into a war that killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, if not more than a million. So these individuals are some of the most disgusting members of the American political establishment. And even if they were seemingly there because they wanted to say something about what a hero John McCain was, well, none of these elites wasted any time politicizing this event. And during the speeches that they gave honoring John McCain, many of them chose to take shots at Donald Trump during that time. And to give you some insight into the mindset of individuals within that DC bubble, well, Susan B. Glasser of The New Yorker writes this about the event, quote, John McCain's funeral was the biggest resistance meeting yet. Two ex-presidents and one eloquent daughter teamed up to rebuke the pointedly uninvited Donald Trump. The biggest resistance gathering Yet, we're talking about individuals, again, like George W. Bush, Henry Kissinger, Mike Pence was there. Isn't he supposed to be what the resistance is resisting since he's part of Donald Trump's administration? I mean, if this is the resistance, then we're the establishment because these are not part of any resistance. They are basically the worst of what American politics has produced over the last couple of decades. And the worst part, I think, for most of us had to be when former president and current war criminal George W. Bush delivered his speech about John McCain. He was honest. No matter whom it offended, 
Presidents were not spared. He was honorable, always recognizing that his opponents were still patriots and human beings. He loved freedom with the passion of a man who knew its absence. He respected the dignity inherent in every life, a dignity that does not stop at borders and cannot be erased by dictators. Perhaps above all, John detested the abuse of power, could not abide bigots and swaggering despots. There was something deep inside him that made him stand up for the little guy, to speak for forgotten people in forgotten places. I think what irritated me the most about that was he clearly wanted to get a few nice articles written, you know, about him because he, quote, took shots at Donald Trump. Because if you if you really want to get back in the good graces of DC media, you just got to say something mean about Donald Trump or condemn Donald Trump. And that's all you've got to do. And he said, John McCain was honest no matter who it offended. And then he paused and he said, presidents were not spared. And right when he looked up, right there at that moment, there had to have been at least a dozen people in the audience just nut themselves right there because obviously, you know, it was pretty transparent what he was doing. He was taking a shot at Donald Trump and you could really see how proud he was of that statement given the shit-eating look on his face and, uh, it was just disgusting. It, it was so despicable to see him make a statement and be praised by everyone in that DC bubble. So, other things he said, which were just laughable, he also said... John McCain respected the dignity inherent in every life, a dignity that does not stop at borders and cannot be erased by dictators. What John McCain is he talking about? Is he talking about a different John McCain than everyone else knew? Because the John McCain we all knew didn't give a fuck about human dignity and life because there wasn't a single war he didn't vociferously advocate for. How can you say that with a straight face? Well, he could say that with a straight face because George Bush is a war criminal and his idea of human dignity is a lot different than normal Americans' conception of that notion. And he also said, perhaps above all, John detested the abuse of power and he also detested bigots and despots. Now, Kyle Kalinske made such a good point about this that I have to parrot it here. John McCain voted for the Patriot Act, one of the biggest abuses of power in American history, and guess what? He also supports Saudi Arabia. Again, how can you say that with a straight face? We are officially living in George Orwell's 1984. War is peace. That's that's the takeaway from this. They're trying to get us to believe the opposite of what's true. And again, no disrespect to John McCain or his family. I'm just stating the facts about his legacy. Him dying doesn't suddenly make him a hero. Your legacy is what your legacy is. And his legacy, unfortunately for him, was atrocious. Um, he also said there was something deep inside John McCain that made him stand up for the little guy. I'll just say this, citation needed, because a Code Pink protester was speaking out against John McCain's warmongering and protesting him, and what did he call her? He called her lowlife scum. He never spoke up for the little guy, and he, in fact, tried to step on those 
few individuals that were brave enough to speak out for the quote little guy that George W. Bush is referring to here. But nobody should take anything George W. Bush says seriously because, again, I'll say it for what, the third or fourth time in this segment? This man is a criminal and he should be locked in prison for murdering hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. But guess what? Because Donald Trump made everyone lose their minds, George Bush's image has been entirely rehabilitated. If you hated George Bush before and you're a liberal, suddenly you love him. And this tweet that Woke Hoover shared is a microcosm of a broader trend I've seen from hashtag resistance liberals. Quote, I adore Bush. I used to despise him, but I was misguided. Trump put things into perspective for me. Bush was a patriot, but made poor decisions. Trump intentionally screws America. And George W. Bush wasn't trying to intentionally screw us by lying us into a war that killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that we're still involved in? I mean, look, make no mistake about it. If you want to compare Donald Trump and uh, George W. Bush, I think it's clear that Donald Trump is much dumber than George W. Bush, but he has yet to do even a fraction of the damage that George W. Bush caused. Give him time and maybe he will. But at this point, to say that George W. Bush was better than Donald Trump and to even go as far as to call him a patriot, if you are a liberal and you believe this shit, you've lost your fucking mind. As many of you know, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has been under investigation by the FCC's Inspector General to determine whether or not he's been crafting policy specifically at the behest and possibly direction of Sinclair in an attempt to make their merger with Tribune Media more likely. And it really seemed as if that was in fact the case, that he was brazenly doing their bidding because there were even some reports that Ajipai was trying to change media ownership rules presumably to strengthen Sinclair's legal argument in order to make that merger more likely but suddenly Ajitpai did a 180 and essentially killed the merger unilaterally and it's now crystal clear as to why he decided to kill that merger to save his own ass because as a result the FCC Inspector General has determined that he is innocent and he did not act to assist Sinclair Media. Had he not killed the merger, this might be a different story. But for more details on this, we go to Haddis Gold of CNN Money, who reports a report published Monday by the FCC Inspector General concluded there was no evidence that Chairman Ajit Pai engaged in impropriety, unscrupulous behavior, favoritism towards Sinclair. Pai came under scrutiny last year after he loosened media ownership rules in a way that critics said benefited conservative-leaning Sinclair, the largest owner of local television stations in the United States. The Inspector General launched its investigation in November after Democratic members of Congress requested an investigation into whether Pai had taken action to improperly benefit Sinclair. Pai surprised observers last month when he said he had serious concerns about the Sinclair acquisition of Tribune. The full commission then referred the merger to an administrative judge hearing, a lengthy process that often kills deals. The FCC called into question whether some of Sinclair's proposed divestments of stations were a sham because they were being sold to people closely aligned with Sinclair and in agreements that would still allow Sinclair to operate the stations. Trump slammed the FCC 
FCC decision in July, saying it was so sad and unfair and that a deal between Sinclair and Tribune would have created a great and much-needed conservative voice. The inspector general said it interviewed Pai and other FCC officials and had looked at email correspondence, phone records, visitor logs, and communications with the White House, but it did not find any improper actions. Pai said in a statement that he was pleased with the report's conclusions. The suggestion that I favored any one company was absurd, he said. So, because the scope of the FCC Inspector General's investigation was limited to Ajit Pai possibly assisting Sinclair, and since Ajit Pai then killed that deal, well, Effectively, the Inspector General's hands were tied. The Inspector General couldn't possibly conclude with a straight face that this man was assisting Sinclair if he's the one that unilaterally killed that merger. But at the same time, is it not clear to the Inspector General that he only killed the merger because he knew that if he didn't, he might be in trouble? So, <laughs> this is a joke. And... I will say this, I don't know if the Inspector General is investigating any other aspects of Ajit Pai and whether he is acting to help internet service providers like Verizon, his former employer, because I mean, if you're going to look into other instances of corruption, you just can't say that he wasn't acting to assist them because a week before he repealed net neutrality, what did he do? He spoke at the headquarters of Verizon. He collaborated with a Verizon executive to do a skit about how he was a show for the industry. And this is a policy he delivered for Verizon that they lobbied for for years. I mean, that clearly poses a conflict of interest and he's doing the bidding of internet service providers. So if you keep digging and you really wanted to find something on a GPI, there's not a question about whether or not you'd find it. But because the FCC was specifically trying to answer the question, did he assist Sinclair, you can't possibly say he did if he killed the merger. Now, we all know he wouldn't have killed the merger if this investigation wasn't taking place. In fact, it probably would have been approved because he was trying to change regulatory rules to make sure that they'd have a stronger legal argument. So I just, it's very clear that he did this to weasel his way out of guilt and as a result he is able to claim that he's innocent because that's what the inspector general finds and i mean <laughs> it's it's painfully obvious that he killed the merger now to save his own ass i was originally wondering why he would do such a thing why after for months trying to assist sinclair and make this merger more likely would he just randomly kill it and I thought it was because he was starting to cave to public pressure, but now it's very clear that he knew that the scope of the FCC Inspector General's investigation into him was limited to his dealings with Sinclair. And as a result, to save his own ass, he had to tank this merger. I mean, you've got to give him credit for being clever. He's a corrupt bastard, but he covers his own ass. But... My plea to the Inspector General is you have to continue looking into what he did. I mean, he lied about a DDoS attack. He's been working very closely with Verizon to repeal net neutrality. He's very clearly a shill. So at a minimum, you're going to find clear conflicts of interest. And what's more likely, you're going to find, I think, instances of corruption. It's why he's rejected FOIA requests of media outlets who have wanted to obtain emails between him and Verizon, but he refused to hand those over.
Additionally, he's obstructing justice. Literally, he refuses to comply with the New York Attorney General's investigation into comment fraud. He won't offer up any information about the fake comments that were submitted at the behest of internet service providers filing anti-net neutrality comments. I mean, there is so much when it comes to Ajit Pai. I've said this before. Once Scott Pruitt exited government, Ajit Pai then became the most corrupt individual in all of Washington, D.C., and that has not changed. So the fact that the inspector general found him innocent in this one instance... I mean, it makes sense from a technical standpoint, since if he killed the Sinclair merger, you can't possibly say he's guilty of assisting Sinclair. But again, <laughs> I've said it like a thousand times during this segment. He did it to save his own ass. So he's covering his tracks better than I thought, because he's always been very brazen about his corruption and pretty open about what he's doing to assist internet service providers. But apparently he's doing what he can to cover his tracks and... Uh, now Ajit Pai is innocent, according to the FCC Inspector General. It, it's a complete joke. It's a complete joke. This is an individual who should be defending his job right now. There should be impeachment proceedings against him. Not just because I disagree with his policy of repealing net neutrality, but because he's working hand-in-hand -hand with internet service providers. It's very clear this is corruption. But... You know, we live in America where justice really doesn't exist. There's a two-tiered justice system. If you're poor and you commit a crime, you're going you're gonna to get penalized for it. You're going to be prosecuted. But if you're rich, if you're an elite, if you're part of government and you commit a crime, chances are you're going to get away scot-free. And I don't think that's going to be different for someone like Ajit Pai. So this is definitely disappointing news because he's clearly corrupt and i hope that the inspector general continues looking into him and certainly widens the scope of his investigation into ajit pai because if you do you're obviously gonna find something it's just a matter of how hard you want to look and uh, you know if, if you limit it to just one area and say he didn't act to assist sinclair well sure you can say that now after he killed their merger but you can't say that about other areas. He already did the bidding of Verizon, his former employer, by killing net neutrality. Look into that. Look into something else. I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating because one of the most corrupt members of the U.S. government is probably going to get away uh, with being just openly corrupt in front of all of our faces. It's despicable. So we finally got some good news about net neutrality. The state of California just passed the strongest net neutrality law in the country. It's now headed to the governor's desk. And hopefully by the time you see this video, Jerry Brown would have already signed it into law. But I want to go over why this policy matters because it really sets a new standard for net neutrality in the country. So according to Jacob Castronacos of The Verge, California's legislature has approved a bill being called the strongest net neutrality law in the United States. The bill would ban internet providers from blocking and throttling legal content and prioritizing some sites and services over others. It would apply these restrictions to both home and mobile connections. That would essentially restore the net neutrality rules enacted federally under former President Barack Obama, which were later repealed by the Federal Commission 
Communications Commission under the watch and guidance of current Chairman Ajit Pai. But this bill actually goes further than those rules with an outright ban on zero rating, the practice of offering free data potentially to the advantage of some companies over others of specific apps. Zero rating would, however, still be allowed as long as the free data applies to an entire category of apps. So an ISP could offer free data for all video streaming apps, but not just for Netflix. The bill was cleared with a final vote in the state Senate today, being approved 23 to 11. It passed in the state assembly yesterday, after initially being approved in the Senate back in May. But the bill had changed in the ensuing months, so it needed to return to its chamber of origin today for final approval. The Electronic Frontier Foundation called the final legislation a gold standard net neutrality bill. Now the bill heads to the governor's desk. California Governor Jerry Brown hasn't said whether he'll sign the legislation, but it's garnered the support of top state Democrats, including House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and Senator Kamala Harris. If it becomes law, internet providers are certain to sue. There's already one clear obstacle. The FCC made a rule prohibiting states from creating net neutrality laws. That rule hasn't been held up in court, and the last time the FCC tried to preempt state laws around broadband, it failed. But that'll at least be one of the issues at play. Yeah, so I mean, this goes without saying, this is a really, really important victory in the fight to save net neutrality because if california adopts strong net neutrality protections hopefully this will galvanize other states to, to do the same and will have a domino effect and they'll they'll follow their lead and what makes it special really is that zero rating provision and the fcc under the leadership of tom wheeler was actually moving in that direction but then we had a flip in administrations trump came in appointed ajit Pai. And any progress we made was completely undone by Ajit Pai. So I'm positive that California will be sued if Jerry Brown signs this into law. But with that being said, legally speaking, I don't know that the FCC actually has the authority to preempt states, but we'll just have to wait and see. But I mean, the fact that they're taking the step in the first place is really, really important. It matters. Now, this would have already been passed and codified into law if there wasn't one gigantic obstacle. A Californian Democratic lawmaker named Miguel Santiago, who is now taking credit for the bill's passage, so he tweeted this out. Net neutrality is officially off to Jerry Brown for his signature. Proud to stand with Scott Wiener, Kevin DeLeon, Rob Bonta of SB822. It's time to start activating our base to contact the governor and encourage him to sign this historic bill. So, I mean, he is really doing quite a bit to, uh, you know, pat himself on the back, but he is an enemy to this bill. He only got on board with this bill because after he decided to unilaterally kill this legislation on some bullshit reasoning, well, he decided to do a 180 because he saw how angry that made his constituents. And seeing that he's facing an election with another Democrat, well, he figured, you know, why fight a losing battle when even if I've taken thousands of dollars from AT&T, my constituents might vote me out because of it. So... He's taking credit for it, and it irritates me that Scott Wiener, who's the original author of this bill, is allowing him to take credit for it. I mean, it's just, can you not see that he's bullshitting you and he only is on board and is happy about this because you had to twist his arm when really 
I mean, we shouldn't have to put pressure on Democrats or really even Republicans for something that's popular. But that's what you have to do when you have shills who take money from the industry. Miguel Santiago took about $5,000 from AT&T, which is a pretty big amount for a state lawmaker. And then he did their bidding, killed the bill, and then backlash made him change his position. And now he thinks he can become a hero. But we all remember what you did, Miguel. You're not a hero. This is Scott Wiener who gets credit for this and anyone else who fought for it, like Kevin DeLeon. Now, I'm not saying that Scott Wiener is a good lawmaker because he's done other really questionable things legislatively in the past, but this is a victory, and you don't get to take credit for it, Miguel. In fact, you were one of the obstacles that delayed it, so sit the fuck down. <laughs> so now, with that out of the way, I will say, you know, this is a victory that I think that the activists deserve credit for because they're the ones who pushed for this. Net neutrality activists around the country really have been absolutely relentless in their advocacy for this bill. And there's been a lot of out-of-state calls trying to help Californians get the strongest net neutrality in the country because I've said this before, this isn't just about California because if California does it, then another state might do it. And really, we just need one state to get the ball rolling. So definitely take the time to call Governor Jerry Brown and have him sign this as soon as possible. I would be surprised if he doesn't sign it, but he is a pretty conservative corporate Democrat. So, you know, we'll see. But Let's take this as a victory. We haven't had much good news surrounding this issue lately. Um, in fact, we've had pretty terrible news. Um, so take a victory, but never, ever stop pushing. We need to make sure that all states enact this type of legislation because for an issue that has such an overwhelming majority of support from American citizens, it shouldn't even be a question. We should have to do very little to get these through legislatures, but the fact that we have to fight this hard just shows the reach of these internet service providers and how hard they're lobbying and fighting against the grassroots on this issue. So kudos to California, kudos to Scott Wiener specifically, and Miguel Santiago, sit down. You did not do this. You were an obstacle. This is a win for the activists in California who really pushed for this vociferously. A story that I really wanted to shine a light on that hasn't gotten much, if any, attention from the mainstream media is the nationwide prison strike that started on August 21st. Now, if you care about human rights, then you should care about everyone in society, including prisoners. And to those of us who don't know anyone who served time, the conditions are surprisingly atrocious. Normal Americans probably have no idea about this. But they are striking nationwide and they're demanding a certain set of reforms. And among those include a repeal of the Prison Litigation Reform Act. They want voting rights for all prisoners, an end to racist gang enhancement laws, an end to death by incarceration, and additionally, they want rehabilitation services for all prisoners among other things. So for specific reasons as to why these reforms in particular are necessary, we go to Raven Rakia of The Nation who explains the Prison Litigation Reform Act, a law passed under President Bill Clinton in 1996, 
places barriers and restrictions on prisoners trying to file a federal lawsuit, including requiring prisoners to go through all administrative grievance processes within their prison before filing a case, not waiving court fees, limiting litigation costs that can be paid to the prisoner's attorney after a successful lawsuit, and restricting court cases that allege only emotional or mental harm. The result is a lack of access to the courts for prisoners when their constitutional rights are violated. A group called JLS, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, is calling for the law to be rescinded. Their second demand reads as follows, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. This has been a theme in work strikes over the past five years and speaks to a JLS slogan, Abolish the 13th, referencing the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. Another demand, ending death by incarceration, targets lengthy prison sentences. Death by incarceration is any exorbitant amount of time that a person is given behind bars, assuming that they'll die behind bars based on the length of that sentence, Sawari explained, who is a spokesperson for the strikes. Life without parole is one example of death by incarceration, but it can also include sentences like 50 years behind bars. In 2017, over 200,000 people were serving life sentences or virtual life sentences. 50 years or more, according to the Sentencing Project. 50,000 of those people were serving life without the possibility of parole. A week before the strike was announced, Lee Correctional Institution in South Carolina made national headlines when a prison riot left seven people dead. Raymond Scott, Eddie Gaskins, Cornelius McClary, Corey Scott, DeMonte Rivera, Joshua Jenkins, and Michael Milledge, all of them prisoners. The Department of Corrections blamed the riot on contraband, saying that opposing gang members were fighting over territory money and prohibited cell phones. The solution, the DOC asserted, was to block all cell phone signals in the prison system, but prisoners painted a more complicated picture, saying that the overcrowding has made prison conditions unbearable and guards waiting hours to intervene resulted in the high body count. While the DOC is trying to blame cell phones for the violence, it's those same phones that allow prisoners to organize speak to the outside world and the media, and keep in touch with family amid exorbitant prison phone fees. South Carolina prisoners and members of Jailhouse Lawyers Speak decided to announce the national prison strike in response to this deadly riot. Prisons can't function without prisoners doing the work that needs to be done. Prisoners are the ones that work in the kitchen, that do the cleaning. They manage so many different aspects of the prison, Sarari told The Appeal. I was actually shocked when I was educated about the prison conditions in the United States a couple of years ago. And when you compare our unusually cruel prison conditions to the likes of Scandinavia, you'll see that we are just punishing prisoners for no good reason. I mean, not paying them or basically paying them pennies to do labor, that is modern-day slavery, and it's completely unacceptable. Now, a lot of people will be quick to say, these are just prisoners. You know, they're the lowest of what society has to offer. But there's a phrase that I'm going to butcher. It says something along the lines of, if you don't look out for the lowest on the totem pole in society, that really says a lot about how you feel about human rights. I completely fucked up that slogan, but <laughs> hopefully people will know um, what I'm talking about and can include in the comment section. But for the most part, the idea is that 
if you care about human rights, you can't pick and choose, you know, where they apply. You have to look out for everyone. And yes, that includes prisoners and felons. And they should be allowed to vote in other countries, in Europe. There are politicians that campaign in prisons because prisoners have the right to vote. So we, we go above and beyond to treat prisoners as cruel as possible. And it's just unnecessary. These are human beings who, in many cases, are serving lots of time. They've been removed from society. Whatever crime they've committed, they're no longer doing harm. So why not take a couple of steps to make sure that their lives aren't completely awful in prison? Why not do that? I, I, I can't think of an argument that's cogent that would convince me of otherwise. I just can't. If you truly care about all members of society, you've got to care about the prison strike. Raise attention about this. Share information about modern-day slavery that still persists, unbeknownst to a lot of Americans. Share information about the prison strike. By the time you see this video, it may be over. I believe it's only lasting for 19 days, but it's just important that we know about these conditions. And by and large, the goal is to elevate this issue, you know, put it on Americans' minds and let people know what's happening in prison because a lot of us just don't know. So this is important. And I wanted to talk about this cause because I haven't heard the mainstream media covering this. And I think that this is a really important story. And we saw the same thing. There was a prison strike that occurred in 2015 or 2016, and it got almost no coverage when that's unacceptable. This is important. The point of doing a protest is to get attention and, you know, raise awareness about a particular cause. But if the media is not going to pay attention then that whole protest was for nothing. And some of them are going on hunger strikes. You know, they're refusing to work and they're putting themselves uh, in jeopardy and making them more vulnerable by doing these strikes. So the, the least we can do is at least listen to them and hear them out and educate ourselves about the conditions in prisons in America. So last week, we kind of got a glimpse of how Donna Brazil, a superdelegate, felt about the DNC's decision to adopt new rules limiting the power of superdelegates. So as you all know, they'll no longer be voting on the first ballot. So they'll only vote in the event of a contested convention or a tie or something like that. So she took to Twitter, you know, she had her little um, victim fest where she cried about it and pretended as if she was being disenfranchised and elites were being disenfranchised, which is comical. And I thought that that would be the end of it. But of course, she proved me wrong because she decided to write an op-ed about this in USA Today titled, Democrats Stripped My Superdelegate Superpowers. Now I'm a notch above a coin toss. Brazil, holy rusted metal, the Democrats stripped powers from superdelegates. I earned my place at this table. There's a reason we're called party faithful. Now, before I read to you her actual argument, there is this really weird prelude to this article where she invokes a superhero analogy to explain why it's bad that she lost her power to overthrow the will of voters. And I think that she thought using this analogy wouldn't make the article seem a little bit more relatable, but 
to me, it just came off as completely cringeworthy. So she writes, Curses, superdelegate is vanquished. I've had my wings clipped, my cape ripped, and my superpowers stripped. My irresistible kung fu grip on the Democratic Party is being pried loose by well-meaning citizens who may yet endanger the very fountainhead of their freedom. You see, since time immemorial, we superdelegates have stood as the guardians and protectors of the secret machinations of the Democratic Party, keeping it safe from outsiders and agitators. We were ever watchful, always ready to spring into action should unorthodoxy raise its ugly head. But now, a simple Democratic National Committee vote has effectively left us neutered, stripped of our awesome powers, left helpless and weak like Superman zonked by kryptonite, Batman without his utility belt, or Hammerless Thor. Okay, I actually don't read a lot of comic books. I've been too busy running the Democratic Party by executive fiat, along with other Politburo insiders. I mean, superdelegates. At least, that's the way it's been explained to us. So, when I read that... It doesn't make you seem more relatable, Donna Brazil. If anything, it makes me not like superpowers because you're using that analogy, but the good news is that none of us have to stop liking superheroes because she's wrong in this analogy. If you're going to invoke this analogy, then use it correctly. Superdelegates, if anything, would be compared to supervillains because they're the ones who would be able to overthrow the will of the people. And who is it that typically goes against the people? It's supervillains, superheroes represent and fight for the people. And think about the argument she's making here. She is essentially calling voters stupid, not capable of making their own decision because she uses language like they are the guardians and protectors of the Democratic Party, keeping it safe from outsiders and agitators. Well, what if the party goes so corrupt and the only thing that can save it is an outsider, someone who doesn't consume party orthodoxy as if it's a religion? I mean, she she has no awareness of how she's coming up to normal Americans. You're an elite who no longer has the power to overthrow the will of voters. And that's what this is about. You're not being disenfranchised. You're not a guardian, guardian watching out for us. You're just an elite who doesn't think we're smart enough to make our own decisions. That's what this is about. You're not a superhero. You're not special. You're an insider. That's it. And furthermore, the fact that you even have a seat at the table after you cheated, it shouldn't be the case. I mean, CNN apparently has higher ethical standards than the DNC because they fired you after you leaked the question to Hillary Clinton trying to give her an unfair advantage over Bernie Sanders in 2016. But for some reason, you're still on the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee. You're still making rules that affect the Democratic Party when we all know that you're biased against outsiders. And now you're just wearing it on your sleeve with this type of stupid article. So Donna Brazil has got to be the least self-aware person in all of politics. But let's get to her actual argument, because believe it or not, there is more here. So she states, last weekend, the DNC voted to essentially disenfranchise the superdelegates, the elected officials, activists, and leaders who go to the Democratic Convention as unpledged delegates, free to support whomever their conscience demands. Many strident voices blamed superdelegates for the fact that Senator Bernie Sanders didn't win the 2016 presidential nomination, even though Hillary Clinton won a clear majority of the elected delegates. In fact, never since their introduction in 1984 have superdelegates overturned the choice of elected delegates. We're not there to circumvent the will of voters. We're simply there to vote. 
Well, not anymore, we're not. According to the new ballot rules, we superdelegates won't be able to vote on the first ballot at the convention, or on any ballot unless there's a tie or some sort of deadlock in the process. So we superdelegates are now what? Merely the mechanism you default to in case of a tie? Great. I've fought for the Democratic Party my entire life, and now I'm one notch above a coin toss. Quote, now that POC women and LGBTQ plus leaders have a significant say in the nomination process, suddenly the rules need to be changed, effectively eliminating their participation. Funny how that happens. Lucy moves the football again. My dear friend and co-author Leah Daughtry tweeted this week. Amen. All of the people lumped together as superdelegates have made the DNC an organization that everyone can be proud of. I invite people to become more involved with it, not to try to make others less involved. To some degree, this has been a perception problem. People seem to think that we superdelegates really did have some sort of superpowers. Maybe it was the quote super part of superdelegate that spooked them. They began to fear and distrust us. We've wound up being outcast and despised like those with superpowers in the X-Men universe, I think. Like I said, I don't actually read a lot of comics. Well, I can still go to the convention as a superdelegate and do everything in my power to help Democrats win elections. I earned my place at this table. Hell, I helped build the table. So when you're sitting at it without me, please use coasters. I don't want any stains on it. We went over that tweet from Leah Daughtry where she implied heavily so that doing away with superdelegates or reducing their power is racist because there are some superdelegates who are black and gay and women. But if you truly care about diversity, Donna, you didn't say a damn thing when Tom Perez purged diverse members of the DNC. He purged Bab Cyperstein, someone who was on the DNC forever, who was a trans woman. He purged Dr. James Zogby, the only Arab American on the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee. Where was your outrage for them, Donna? And furthermore, understand how they're trying to weaponize identity politics. Because most superdelegates are white men. Because what are superdelegates comprised of? Former governors, former mayors, former party elites and officials, mostly white people, white dudes. So, because there's a couple of black women and gay people on that list of superdelegates, doesn't mean that by and large getting rid of superdelegates is done to purge the organization of, you know, voices that are from marginalized groups. That's obviously absurd. In fact, by getting rid of superdelegates, we're trying to bolster the voices of marginalized communities because the less influence that elites have, the more influence that normal Americans have. But she doesn't get this because she's in her DC bubble and she feels entitled. She said, quote, hell, I helped build the table. So when you're sitting at it without me, please use coasters. I don't want any stains on it. I mean, this is the type of entitlement that irritates me and she claims that there's this perception problem there's no perception problem you have a corruption problem donna brazil you cheated you're part of the problem and nobody is saying that it was specifically superdelegates that resulted in bernie sanders defeat but to say that superdelegates weren't a problem and didn't harm Bernie Sanders is completely disingenuous because what did Hillary Clinton do with superdelegates? She collected so many superdelegate endorsements 
And the media went right along with this and tried to make it seem as if those superdelegate endorsements were the same as pledged delegates. So she essentially used endorsements from party elites to boost her pledged delegate lead or overall delegate lead to make it seem as if the lead she had over Bernie Sanders was so insurmountable, there was no way that he would win. And thus, if you're a Bernie Sanders voter, then you might as well just stay home. And that's what a lot of people did. I know people who said, there's no way he's going to win, so I'm just going to stay home. And some of them just voted for Hillary Clinton because they just thought, Bernie Sanders would never win because Hillary Clinton, she just had it wrapped up. So superdelegates have this demoralizing effect on progressives, or they certainly had that. And getting rid of superdelegates was the morally justifiable thing to do. But of course, because she's an out-of-touch party elite who's rich, who's in that DC bubble, she thinks she's the victim here. She literally said that superdelegates were being disenfranchised. I mean, do you hear yourself, Donna Brazil? Think of how condescending you're being. Us superdelegates, we're important because if voters make a decision that we disagree with, well, we've got to swoop in and save these stupid voters from themselves. That's essentially your argument. It's just absurd, and I, I'm honestly baffled by the fact that she would publish this and be so brazen in her elitism. You're a cheater. Be lucky that you're even on the DNC at all, you're on the Rules and Bylaws Committee when you're a cheater. So be lucky you're there at all. But yet she's so entitled, she thinks that anyone who wants to have a little bit more say in making the party more equitable, where they're just trying to victimize her. It's always about her. That's what these elites care about. It's always about their power. It's always about them, nobody else. And I'm so sick of it. I am so sick of this. It's not a perception problem. If you honestly think that the DNC is hated by their own base because of a perception problem, then certainly by writing articles like this, you're not helping with that perception problem, Donna. You're not. If you needed proof that everything is stupid and we're all living in hell, I think that I have definitive proof for you. Donna Brazil and Sarah Palin will be teaming up at the University of Houston for an event titled Bridging the Political Divide. This is real. This is happening. <laughs> Why? Why is this happening? I. Everything is so stupid right now in the world. Everything. So, this is how the university describes the event. In this powerful conversation between the two women, the pair will examine the increasingly polarized American landscape and the future of the Republican and Democratic parties, providing an honest look at both sides of the partisan divide. Now, the event is free, but even if it's free, who would want to watch these two idiots make word salad for two hours, two and a half hours? Who would want to see this? Who would be masochistic enough to put themselves through that? Now, <laughs> to make matters worse, the university actually released a trailer for this event. Yes, I said a trailer for this event. And yes, here it is.
Now, I'll be honest, at first, I laughed at this idea because my thought was, how could these two grifters possibly bridge the American political divide? But when you go to this video's YouTube page and you look at the like to dislike ratio, I saw something that I have never seen before. Zero likes and 83, well, now 84 dislikes. I've never seen a video receive zero likes and that many dislikes. I mean, this is truly unprecedented. So, I mean, call me crazy, but I do think it's possible that they might be able to unite at least some Americans because both sides of the political aisle hate them both, perhaps equally. But in all seriousness, here's why this won't work. If you truly want to hear from representations of both sides of the political aisle, then you need to get working class people who actually represent both sides of the aisle. Sarah Palin is a political elite, former vice presidential candidate, former governor, who's in no way representative of average working class Republican voters, even if she does embody the worst of what the Republican Party has to offer and Republican Party extremism. And when it comes to Donna Brazile, she represents the left even less so than Sarah Palin represents the right because she's part of the Democratic Party establishment that was busted for cheating by giving Hillary Clinton a debate question. She's not a representative of the left. Real progressives on the left actually despise her. And if this does end up bringing anyone together from opposite sides of the political spectrum, it'll bring together right-wing elites with left-wing elites normal americans do you honestly think this is going to do anything to bring them together of course not and i can't even give them credit for trying because these are two grifters who are opportunistic who are only doing this because they think it might boost their public profiles sarah palin especially because she's been out of work for a while donna brazil uh you know she has a job again at the dnc after she should have been fired but I mean, this is the stupidest thing I think I've ever seen. This is really, really just unnecessary. And if you want to bring people together, get a Trump voter and a Bernie voter or a Hillary voter, throw a Hillary, Hillary voter, you know, to the mix as well. But getting two elites and oligarchs together and thinking that they're going to accomplish anything and bring normal Americans together is just downright laughable. At the rate we're going... Pretty much anyone who has a D in front of their name will be running for president in 2020. I mean, this is going to be perhaps the largest field ever. Everyone is running and we have another individual that may just be throwing his hat into the race. And that person is former 2004 Democratic Party nominee John Kerry, who, according to CBS News, won't rule out a 2020 White House run. Okay. So, <laughs> I've got two responses to this overall. My first response is, who in their right minds would be excited about John Kerry? Is there anyone in the country who cares about John Kerry that would think, ooh, there's someone I could vote for, John Kerry? I mean, I can't think of anyone. I mean, and the names that we're seeing floated, Michael Evanetti, or Evanati, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, he's being floated. Uh, we have the Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz. I mean, who's going to vote for these people? So my first response undoubtedly is just stop. Why? But the other side of my brand is saying, this is good. The more corporate Democrats in the ring, the more that 
left-wing neoliberal Democrats or centrists, really, neoliberal Democrats split their vote. Because if there's a hundred different options on the neoliberal side and just one option on our side, Bernie Sanders, then what happens? We get the majority or the plurality and Bernie wins. But there's one thing that can throw a wrench in that plan. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie can both run simultaneously, thus splitting progressive votes and allowing a corporate Democrat like Joe Biden or even John Kerry to swoop in and win the nomination. If that happens, then we've got another potential disaster on our hands because if you're going to put up a corporate establishment Democrat against Donald Trump, odds are we're risking another 2016. And I think Donald Trump knows this because he actually tweeted out a statement mocking John Kerry saying, I see that John Kerry, the father of the now terminated Iran deal, is thinking of running for president. I should only be so lucky, although the field that is currently assembling looks really good for me. So even though I hate to say things like this, but Donald Trump is kind of right. Most of the Democrats planning on running are atrocious. They're mostly corporate, opportunistic, neoliberal Democrats like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, who are doing everything that they can to make sure that during these Brett Kavanaugh hearings, they get in some really good headlines and they really go hard on him, you know, and it, it drives me nuts. It's, you know that there's an agenda. You know that they're all thinking about their own career. And here's the thing. We need a field of candidates that actually are running because they feel as though they personally can benefit the American people. These people are all just opportunists. And maybe that's not necessarily true with John Kerry. I think he's probably thinking, look, I I was there before. You know, I know how to run a campaign and I could beat Donald Trump. I may have lost to George Bush, but I could win this time for sure. I mean, I don't know what he's thinking, but I think maybe he's not necessarily as opportunistic just because, you know, he's... He's done everything he can. He's been a senator. He was a Democratic Party presidential nominee. He was Secretary of State. So, I mean, there's not much left he can do. So, I'm less inclined to believe that he's just doing this because he cares about his career. But most Democrats in the field right now, they're only doing this for self-serving reasons. And I hate that. But at the same time, again, that helps us. We just have to hope that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren... Only one of them will run, and of course it should be Bernie Sanders, because I'm sorry, Liz, but we all wanted you to run, and you cleared the path for Hillary Clinton. You decided not to run, specifically to appease Hillary Clinton and the establishment. So you had your chance. Bernie was the only one brave enough, brave enough to run, excuse me, and he should be the one to run because he galvanized this political revolution, and we're seeing it transpire in front of us. All these candidates are running on his platform. And he's the one person who I have no doubt could beat Donald Trump. Now, is it a sure bet that Bernie would beat Trump? Nothing is a sure bet. And I'm certainly not going to make the mistake I made in 2016 and underestimate our opponent, that is Donald Trump. But if you really want to increase the odds that we defeat that orange buffoon in the White House... You can't go with a corporate Democrat. You just, you've got to go with someone else. I mean, most corporate Democrats won't be as bad as in, and as incompetent as Hillary Clinton, but we've got to get Trump out. We need someone who can win, and that person is Bernie. So all these individuals, you know, like John Kerry, who are running for really no good reason, 
it's annoying, it's stupid, and I don't get it why they're doing it, but at the same time, it does help progressives because the bigger the field of candidates there is that neoliberals have to choose from, the easier time progressives will have at getting Bernie Sanders through a Democratic Party primary, which he presumably will be running as a Democrat. In fact, I think he even stated he will be running as a Democrat. So, you know, it's, it is what it is, but this is just such weird news. I don't get why John Kerry of all people would choose to throw his hat back into the ring. It honestly makes no sense to me. Last week on the program, we talked about how the Human Rights Campaign, which is the country's largest LGBTQ plus organization, decided to shun Cynthia Nixon and endorsed Andrew Cuomo instead. Now, the reason why that's problematic is because Cynthia Nixon is a bisexual woman who's progressive, who has policies that are preferable to Andrew Cuomo's if you care about the LGBTQ community. But nonetheless, the human rights campaign decided to go with the establishment yet again. Now, as I was talking about that story last week, little did I know they shunned another LGBTQ progressive in favor of an establishment politician. And this time, they decided to reject Carrie Evelyn Harris, who is a Justice Democrat, and she's running against corporate Democrat Tom Carper, and she supports Medicare for All, student loan debt cancellation, criminal justice reform, campaign finance reform. I mean, she checks all the boxes, but most importantly, her policies would specifically benefit members of the LGBTQ community who are low income. But can you guess who they decided to endorse? Well, to no one's surprise, they decided to endorse Tom Carper, the entrenched establishment politician. So I'm noticing that there's a really clear trend here. They're only going to be willing to endorse an LGBTQ progressive in the event they're not running against a corporate Democrat. But if there's a more entrenched establishment politician, they're always going to side with that individual. Always. That's what we've seen. I mean, in 2016, they endorsed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders, which was laughable because Hillary Clinton had an anti-gay record. In 2004, on the Senate floor, she talked about how she was against marriage equality and she believed marriage was between a man and a woman. Whereas Bernie Sanders, when he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, was doing more for LGBTQ rights than any other mayor in the country. He endorsed marriage equality back in the 70s. He allowed for gay pride parades, even if that threatened his job, and people on city council wanted to get him kicked out because he did that. But he took risks for members of the LGBTQ community and showed just how courageous he was in standing up for our rights, and yet they decided to endorse Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. And now it's getting worse because they're really showing that they're full of shit because if you're shunning members of the LGBTQ community who are progressive, then you don't stand for LGBTQ Americans. You stand for the establishment and you're only serving the establishment. And when you see Carrie Evelyn Harris, you can't deny how phenomenal of a candidate she is. I mean, she really is one of the best candidates that we've seen in this election cycle, and they didn't even give her a chance, presumably. They endorsed Tom Carper, a corporate Democrat. So, I mean, what makes this frustrating is that their endorsement really does hold a lot of weight for members of the LGBTQ community who are still 
relying on the endorsements of the human rights campaign because for me i was i really followed this organization and respected them i was you know a member i canvassed for them and if they endorsed someone i would really take their word as gold thankfully i i learned quickly that they're full of shit but a lot of people don't know and they're trying to do good and they're trying to support the lgbtq community and they look at these endorsements and they think okay well the human rights campaign supports tom carper so i'm not even going to give the other person you know, the time of day, because my number one issue, it's LGBTQ rights, so I'm going to go with Tom Carper, when in actuality, they're voting against the candidate who would do more for the LGBTQ community. So, I'll say this, what they did was harmful. They could have helped an LGBTQ progressive candidate, but they chose not to. So, I'm going to show you an ad from Carrie Evelyn Harris to show you what she's all about, and she's just... She's a phenomenal candidate, and she deserves your support. The election is taking place within a couple of days. Um, by the time you see this, it'll probably be the day of the election. And if you can, get out and vote for her, because she is a phenomenal candidate. When you're flying, you realize that the world looks very different depending on your perspective. What once felt enormous and too much to handle quickly became small. Within you, you have the power to decide what you see. My name is Carrie Evelyn Harris. I'm a United States Air Force veteran, and I am running to represent all of the people of Delaware. The most important thing to me is injecting hope back into people. Our elected officials are failing us. People have remained in power because they only give us just enough to gasp for air, but not enough to actually breathe and thrive. Their inability to regulate large banks who gambled with our futures and now our healthcare is the pharmaceutical companies that they never rein in, that they don't regulate to make sure that the costs of prescriptions go down, that they don't regulate insurance companies to make sure that prices don't continuously skyrocket. Our schools, libraries, and community centers have been neglected. Our struggles are connected. The people of Delaware deserve a voice in Washington. All of us deserve health care, education, a good wage for a hard day's work healthy air and water, and a balanced criminal justice system. We are going to ensure that a corporation never outranks an individual. And to know that tomorrow will be brighter, we deserve representation that will speak for us and with us. This is what I do, an organizer. I know that this is where my heart is. Those of us that live in the trenches know what it takes to change our communities and make them better. We can see past what the original visual is, and see what the future looks like when you change it. You see the beauty and you see the chaos all at once. I know that there is nothing that we can't take on, that we can change our perspective on how we approach things and make change that is lasting. We share the dream of an America that works for everyone. Let's dare to act together. So a lot of pundits who look back at 2016 are now correctly pointing out that one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost was because she didn't have a message. She was simply banking on the fact that not being Donald Trump would carry her to victory. And now people are seeing how that obviously wasn't enough. Now, someone who's not replicating that strategy is Cynthia Nixon. She's running as an unapologetic progressive and she's promoting really bold policy ideas such as state-run Medicare for All, abolishing ICE, and she truly 
has made her mark on progressive politics in America. She basically is the the antithesis of Hillary Clinton, who is running as someone who is not just banking on being anti-Trump, but nonetheless, that didn't stop someone on MSNBC from asking her this question. Uh, Ms. Nixon, you and Governor Cuomo argued yesterday about, or argued at, during your debate, about who was the biggest Donald Trump um, critic. You also said that, that Governor Cuomo should return some of the donations that Donald Trump made to his campaign. My question to you is, how effective do you think it is to run an anti-Trump campaign, given that Democrats did that in 2016 and lost? That's exactly why I'm running, because I feel that Democrats this year, if we if we want to win and if we want our voters to turn out, Democrats have to understand what we stand for. Um, we can't just be a kinder, gentler, more diverse version of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party. We need to elect more Democrats this year, but we also yep. need to elect better Democrats. And we need people to speak about the economic and the racial and the gender inequality that's swallowing our democracy whole and actually do something about it, not just pay lip service to it. So you could see that Cynthia Nixon was actually shocked that she, of all people, was asked that question because I think <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. Of course, Cynthia Nixon knows that she she can't just run and be anti-Trump and expect to win. Of course. Now, the problem is that even though it's true that you have to be more than just anti-Trump, the whole premise of the question itself is flawed because in pointing out how Andrew Cuomo took money from Donald Trump, Cynthia Nixon is trying to call Andrew Cuomo's bluff and demonstrate that he's not as anti-Trump as he seems and wants you to think he is. And she's trying to position herself as a progressive alternative to Donald Trump, which is why she brings up progressive policy ideas. So if there's anyone in the country that's not banking on winning simply because they're anti-Trump, it's Cynthia Nixon. So even if I'm glad and relieved, quite frankly, that that pundit is on the right track in realizing that, yes, Democrats need to be more than anti-Trump, well, you're horribly misled about how that looks in practice. Because if there's anyone who's not just anti-Trump, it's Cynthia Nixon. Have you looked at her platform? Have you seen what she stands for? Have you heard what she's been talking about? She's making headlines for saying things that are pretty controversial. She's breaking norms. She called ICE a terrorist organization. She's attacking Andrew Cuomo when DC orthodoxy would probably recommend that you not attack your political opponent, but she's doing it because she believes Andrew Cuomo is corrupt and not good enough. She's not anti she's not just anti-Trump. Of course she is anti-Trump, but she's the real deal. She's an actual alternative to Donald Trump because if you truly want to be anti-Trump, then you can't just say I'm not Donald Trump and think that that will suffice. You actually have to have policies that counter Donald Trump's right-wing agenda. So, this was such a weird question to ask Cynthia Nixon. I mean, certainly, you can ask this to Andrew Cuomo. I think that would be appropriate. This should have been asked, you know, um, to Hillary Clinton. She should have been asked this very question. Other Democrats can certainly, you can ask them this question. But, to ask Cynthia Nixon was just weird, and I'm not sure what to make of it. But I, I wanted to point it out because... I think that in some way, the cynic in me wants to think that this pundit is trying to tie Cynthia Nixon to Hillary Clinton's unpopularity in order to make voters in New York think that 
she's more like Hillary Clinton, she's more like the establishment, and you could certainly misinform voters and make it seem as if that's the case, because she is an actress, she's rich, right? So if you don't know about Cynthia Nixon's policies, you could get caught up in that rhetoric. I dismissed Cynthia Nixon admittedly at first, because I thought, I don't know who this person is, I know she's an actress, but I mean, stay in your lane, don't get into politics, but after listening to her, she won me over very quickly. She showed that she cares about policies, that she's the real deal. So it's easy to get manipulated if you don't know about Cynthia Nixon and you haven't heard her speak. So the cynic in me thinks this pundit is trying to get voters to think she's more like Hillary Clinton, when in actuality, it's Andrew Cuomo who's more like Hillary Clinton because he is the establishment. He has the backing of the establishment. I mean, the DNC chair, Tom Perez, violated his neutrality promise to endorse Andrew Cuomo. It doesn't get more establishment than that. So if you're looking for an anti-establishment progressive in this race, we need to make it clear that individual is Cynthia Nixon. Um, so hopefully this pundit was just misinformed and wasn't trying to muddy the waters, but watching cable news and mainstream media enough, you know, I think I know better. I think we all know better about their intentions. New York's gubernatorial race is finally winding down, and we finally got to see Cynthia Nixon debate Andrew Cuomo, and after watching the debate, I would probably say that Cynthia Nixon won overall, and the reason why I'm saying probably instead of definitely is because even if she did a great job putting Andrew Cuomo on defense the entire time, the problem is that the moderators kind of played into Andrew Cuomo's framing of the debate by feeding into this idea that Cynthia Nixon is is not qualified and that she's just an actress and doesn't really know what she's talking about and doesn't know how to run a state. And even though I knew that would be a theme during the debate, the problem is that this took place just hours before a massive scandal broke about Andrew Cuomo. And as Vice reports, Andrew Cuomo received $25,000 donation from Harvey Weinstein's law firm. The New York governor accepted the hefty donation at the same time he temporarily halted a probe into the handling of a 2015 case about Weinstein's alleged misconduct. Now, this is a massive, massive scandal, and it not only speaks to Andrew Cuomo's corruption, but his character covering for a despicable figure like Harvey Weinstein. But the moderators of this debate decided to not open with this or even bring it up at all. And I'm saying that not because I think that the moderators were biased. I'm saying that because it was a short debate and they didn't have time to address a lot of issues. And I think that they probably already planned the questions that they wanted to ask in advance. And when the moderators saw that the story broke, they figured we just don't have time. So we're going to have to ignore it, which is something you just can't do. But overall, I still think this was a great debate. Cynthia Nixon performed exceptionally well. And you really saw a clear distinction between the two with regard to policy. And there were times that were just downright embarrassing for Andrew Cuomo, which is why I think Cynthia Nixon was probably victorious overall because it was just clear that he was grasping for straws in any attempt to attack her and he ended up face planting multiple times. So first of all, to kind of show you how he opened the debate, you know, thus setting the tone 
for the debate, he decided to kind of show us just how much he was resisting Donald Trump. Uh, pleasure to be with you today, CBS. Thank you. Pleasure to be at Hofstra. Uh, and also, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Senator John McCain, who is a, not a member of our party, but a great, great American. And the flags in the state of New York will be at half staff, uh, regardless of what Washington does. So that, to me, just came off as cringeworthy. I mean, it was nothing more than virtue signaling. And he honestly thinks that that tepid criticism of Donald Trump is somehow sufficient when it comes to resisting Donald Trump. But by and large, voters don't care about that. They care about policy. And Cynthia Nixon was quick to point out that you can't just resist Donald Trump when it comes to rhetoric. You actually have to combat what Donald Trump is doing with policy. And she wasted no time pouncing on Andrew Cuomo. When it comes to opposing Donald Trump in New York State, we already have a corrupt corporate Republican in the White House. We don't need a corrupt corporate Democrat in Albany as his main opposition. <laughs> not just with rhetoric but with policy so that was awesome and i think that for cynthia nixon that really set the tone for the entire debate because she made sure that she backed him into a corner and would not let him out and as you're going to see throughout this debate she didn't back off at all she continuously attacked him and i think that that's what you've got to do i don't agree with this notion bernie sanders kind of puts forward that oh you know i pride myself on never running a negative campaign ad no you have to go for the jugular because these are corporate democrats who are going to lie who are going to obfuscate and you've got to make sure that you're never on defense you've got to play offense and that's what she was doing and she went on to list a plethora of policy reasons why Andrew Cuomo isn't just not a good liberal, but is actually fairly conservative. Now, she called him a corporate Democrat. He obviously didn't like that. And then he rebutted that claim with the infamous, uh, I'm not, you are argument, as you're going to see here. There's only one corporate Democrat on this stage. It's my opponent, okay. not me. <laughs> Governor, thank you. Thank you. I'd love to hear now, <laughs> If you're wondering how a candidate who takes zero dollars from large multinational corporations can possibly be considered a corporate Democrat when she's the opposite of a corporate Democrat, well, Andrew Cuomo tried to explain himself as to how Cynthia Nixon is a corporate Democrat, and you're going to see here that he completely face-planted. My opponent, as a corporate donor to the mayor, called the mayor's office for special favors for her friends. How am I Marcia Kramer, Marcia Kramer asked the mayoral debate, if a donor called you mayor, would you call the Department of Investigations and report that a donor called you for a favor? That was Marcia Kramer's question to the mayoral debate candidates. Cynthia Nixon called the mayor's office asked for favors for her friends. I Why asked wasn't for the no Department favors for friends, investigation and I am not called? a corporate donor to what? anyone. You are a corporation. When you I file taxes as a corporation, you are a corporation. You donated to the mayor. I anyone's political campaign. You are a corporation. I donate through my own are personal funds. Are you a corporation? Funds. I am a person. And you're a corporation. But I do not ever 
ever make political contributions yes, but you through are my... Yes, but no, you're a corporate. You no, file that taxes is categorically as a untrue. That is cat and I asked for no favor. What I asked for was for helicopters to stop flying over the free Shakespeare in the Park. Oh, Delacorte that's not a favor? Theater. That's not a favor. That's a favor to the people Ask, of New York. How about for the tea house for Sarah Jessica Parker? That wasn't a favor? I don't even know what you're referring to. Well, you should read the newspapers. All right. Okay. For me, that was the first genuinely cringeworthy moment. I think that the flag thing with McCain was pretty cringeworthy and just stupid in general. But that was a really cringeworthy moment for Andrew Cuomo. He he completely face-planted there. And I think that Cynthia Nixon, you know, and pretty much laughing in his face, she had the perfect response because his argument was that Cynthia Nixon is a corporate Democrat because she pays corporate taxes. Now, I have two things to say about that. First of all, he's accusing her of being a, quote, corporate donor because she was trying to, quote, buy influence by donating to politicians. But what corporate donors generally expect when they donate to politicians is favors in the form of tax cuts and deregulation. But what Cynthia Nixon asked for were helicopters to stop flying over a particular area of New York. So in order to accuse her of trying to buy enough influence to get this state to stop flying helicopters over a particular area of New York City, she would have had to know at the time she made the contribution that there would one day be helicopters flying over an area that would irritate her. So <laughs> his argument doesn't make sense. She'd have to be able to see into the future if you're really going to count that as her trying to buy influence, because obviously that's not the same thing as the Koch brothers donating to Andrew Cuomo, because they did. When they donate, they expect something in return, such as tax cuts. When Cynthia Nixon donated to public officials, you can't possibly say that she knew in advance that there'd one, one day be a favor, especially if the favor she's calling in is for helicopters to stop flying over a particular area. That's a complaint that any citizen can make. So that's such a laughable argument. I don't even know how he said it with a straight face. But the second thing I want to say about this is he criticizes the amount of money that she's paying in taxes. And later you're going to see that he's going to go on to criticize her also for not releasing enough of her tax returns. And the implication embedded with that criticism is that he wants to know more about her personal finances and the amount of taxes she's paying because there's currently a dearth of information surrounding her. But at the same time, he's contending that she's paying the corporate tax rate and he's sure about that. So she's a corporate Democrat because she's supposedly paying the corporate tax rate. But later on, he's going to contradict himself by saying that she she needs to release her tax returns so we can know the tax rate that she's paying. So do you see how he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth? On one hand, he's saying you're a corporate Democrat because you're paying the corporate tax rate. And then on another hand, later on, he's going to say, well, why don't you release your tax returns so we can see the tax rate that you're paying? This is a contradiction and he doesn't see it, but maybe he wasn't thinking about the contradiction when he made this argument and didn't think about how this would later come back to bite him in the ass when he brings up the uh, her not willing to release her tax return, supposedly. But you can tell that he was grasping for straws and he started to get flustered because she continuously had him backed into a corner. And then we had this really nice Freudian slip from Andrew Cuomo that I just loved. Can you stop interrupting? Can you stop interrupting? Can you stop lying? Yeah. Uh, as soon as you do. So understand that what he did there was he inadvertently admitted that he was lying because he said that he would stop lying only if she stopped. So you're essentially admitting that you're lying, Andrew. 
do you not understand why that's not an argument you want to use? So, I mean, clearly he didn't intend to say that, and I don't want to imply that this was him explicitly admitting that he was lying, but this moment speaks more to his debate performance overall because he was clearly getting flustered by her and was starting to break away from his talking points and lose sight of his overall argument. And to kind of demonstrate later how he knew he messed up, we saw another exchange that was relatively similar where she interrupted him, but he made sure to not make the same mistake again by <laughs> inadvertently admitting that he was lying. Can you please stop interrupting? Can you please do that? If you stop lying, and, I will stop interrupting. I, okay, and let me, okay. let me, one other point. Now that was some of the more fun portions of the debate where they really went back and forth, but I do want to get into some of the more harsher criticisms that Cynthia Nixon had of him because she talked about all of the policy failures and how he's just not doing enough as a Democratic governor and his excuse, you'll see, time and again is, well, look, I tried, I endorse all of these progressive policies, but Republicans just simply wouldn't let me get it done. Now, for anyone who's followed New York politics, this is pretty much Andrew Cuomo's go-to strategy. He takes strong progressive positions knowing he'll never have to fight for them or sign them into law because he empowers Republicans and uses them as an excuse when he's unable to pass policies that are actually progressive into law. Now, Cynthia Nixon called him out for this, and it was a really important moment. I fought for congestion pricing. Uh, Not comprehensive congestion pricing. I have made walked, real inroads I, in funding I, the rescue of our New York I, City subway. I fought for it very hard. The Republican here, Senate folks. wouldn't pass it. Why do we Thank have a Republican both. Senate? It's because your empowerment of the IDC. That's that the only true and if you knew facts you would know that didn't you allow didn't you allow the republicans to gerrymander their own districts no, no. yes you did Ms. in you know, 2011 do you know Ms. Ms. we're going to move on we're going to yeah. move on thank you governor now that was so frustrating to me because right when it was getting good the moderators stopped that discussion from going forward when I think that, look, given the time restraints of the debate, you have to prioritize what's important for voters. And that's a really, really important piece of information that voters in New York should know about. Liberal voters who are imbuing Andrew Cuomo with the responsibility to represent them, they need to know that he's literally empowering Republicans to take control of New York's government so that way he doesn't have to actually get any progressive policies codified into law. It's disgusting, it's scandalous, and they should have allowed Cynthia Nixon to hammer him for that. But unfortunately, they uh, they cut off that conversation. Now, she does hammer him further. She goes on to talk about corruption and how he's not fighting corruption and the explicit implication in her argument here and attack on him, quite frankly, is that the reason why he's not doing enough to fight corruption is because, frankly, he's pretty corrupt himself. Campaign finance reform is something that Governor Cuomo has been promising ever since he ran in 2010. It's not hard to know how to do campaign finance reform. It's to close the LLC loophole by which corporations can donate an unlimited amount of money to political campaigns. But since taking office, Governor Cuomo has received $16 million through the LLC loophole. That's more than every single legislator in Albany combined. To say he is disincentivized to close this loophole would be, uh, a, a, you know, no, no, would not begin to describe it strongly enough. He shut down the Moreland Commission, uh, which was doing a job investigating corruption when it came too close to him. Um, Joe Prococo is, was his most trusted advisor and he is heading to jail, now e to prison. Either 
Joe Prococo was doing something that the governor expected him to do and advised him to do, or his right-hand man was doing something under his own nose that he had no idea about. He's so we have either incompetence or corruption. Which is That was, in my opinion, a really, really strong attack that she lobbed against him. And you could just really see that she had him backed into a corner and there was no argument that he could make to get himself out. So what he tried to do was instead of playing defense the whole time, he tried to play a little bit of offense and he tried to lob an attack against her. And really the only thing he can attack her for, since she doesn't really have a political record and since she's actually progressive, is her unwillingness, her supposed unwillingness to release her tax returns. I did release my, my, my uh, one, one year of tax returns as soon as I entered the race, which is more than, than Andrew Cuomo did when he ran in 2010. He didn't release it until after the election. Okay. I released four more years recently. It's a big nothing burger and that's all he has to say about it. Okay. I we're going to yeah. move on. If Thank it you. was a nothing burger, burger, you wouldn't hide it for three hours it. on a Friday. I, I didn't hide it. Maybe I Donald Trump's taxes are a nothing burger, too. Reporters came, but it's they only looked you them over, and, and they wrote Trump. nothing about it because there okay. was nothing well, then to why see. Would, why wouldn't you release them for a real period of time instead of just for three hours why with no notice? Why didn't you release your taxes in 2010 when you ran? I, you didn't release them until after the I, election. I, I, I did my more. Taxes you kept moving the goalposts. I've released them for 20. And have a whole different set of rules for me than you have for you, and I don't think that's fair. I've released them for 20 years. Here it is. I've released my taxes for 20 years. Will you? I didn't think so. Next question. Let's okay, move we're going to the goalposts again. Why don't I release I them for 50 years? Well, you said same to. rules. Those were my you rules. You didn't release your taxes when for you ran 20, in 2010 until after the election. For, for 20 years. That was one of the only moments where he managed to actually back her into a corner. And I think that by and large, he probably did get the better of that exchange, but even with that being said, this is a similar attack that Democrats used against Bernie Sanders as well, and the establishment always invokes this argument against progressives because by doing this, you kind of imply that progressives are somewhat like Trump, who also refused to release his tax returns, but in wanting to see Donald Trump's tax returns, that actually makes sense because... He's a businessman with a history of not just fraud and corruption, but incompetence as well. So that's a much more persuasive argument to say that you want to see Donald Trump's tax returns. But I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes to this argument, I just I don't care. And I don't think that voters care, too. Should Cynthia Nixon and other progressives like Bernie Sanders release as much of their tax returns as they possibly can find? Of course they should. But if they don't, do we really care that much? No, not necessarily, because... These aren't individuals in the business world. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not like Donald Trump. So, releasing his tax returns, you can kind of see who he's in bed with, you know, who who is bankrolling him, the tax rate he's paying. But when it comes to people like Bernie Sanders and Cynthia Nixon, it's just a hacky argument that neoliberal Democrats use because they don't know how else to attack progressive Democrats. But at the same time, even if I think that this argument is not persuasive, I do think that it was still one argument that Andrew Cuomo managed 
to land against Cynthia Nixon, but for the most part, every other rebuttal that he tried to do when he was backed into a corner, it just, it didn't, it didn't work. It didn't land for him. And there were certain times where he tried to get out of a corner by flipping arguments and he just embarrassed himself. I don't know how else to describe the situation. So, for example, she brought up how the Koch brothers gave him money and as a result, he cut their taxes. That's corruption. Now, as she makes this argument, watch how he tries to flip it on her and make her the bad guy in this particular uh, exchange. I would say that there are a number of issues in which Andrew Cuomo claims credit, but is something that he has been forced into by labor and, and has fought and fought and fought, like the $15 minimum wage that now he calls himself a champion on. Just a few months before he fast passed the $15 minimum wage. He said it was a non-starter. He said the $13 minimum wage was too much. He was advocating for $10.50. The same is true of paid family leave. The same is true. He In, the fir in his first term, he declared war on, on unions, which is why the Koch brothers gave him $87,000 when he ran in 2010, because they knew that his policies were, were going to benefit billionaires like them and corporations like theirs, and were going to gut public pensions, which is what he did. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if, if my, I just respond because, you know, you can't have uh, so many accusations that are so false. Uh, I think, uh, I think the, uh, my opponent is upset with the Koch brothers as they're the only ones who take more corporate tax loopholes than she does. But Andrew, I thought that you said you didn't know enough about her taxes and personal finances, which is why you wanted her to release her tax returns. I mean, do you see what I'm talking about? He has no argument. He has no way or he had no way for the whole debate of getting himself out of the corner that she backed him into. And it was just it was glorious to watch. So I do want to get into some of the more policy substance areas because Cynthia Nixon made a phenomenal case. It was just incredibly strong when it comes to marijuana legalization. And towards the end here of this clip that I'm about to show you, you're going to see that Andrew Cuomo tried to imply that he's also in favor of marijuana legalization, even though he only recently changed his position on that because he has a progressive challenger who supports marijuana legalization. But watch how quickly she called him out on his bullshit. I think it's very important that we legalize marijuana here in New York State. Eight other states have done it plus the District of Columbia. There are a lot of reasons to do it, but first and foremost, because it's a racial justice issue. Because people across all ethnic and racial lines use marijuana at roughly the same rates, but the arrests for marijuana are 80% black and Latino. Uh, we need to not only legalize marijuana here, but when it, this multi-billion dollar industry comes to New York, we need to prioritize the individuals and the communities that have been the most harmed by the war on drugs. We need to follow the Oakland model, we need to follow the Massachusetts model, and prioritize those communities, not only for licenses, but for small business loans and for other supports. And we need to use the tens of millions of dollars that we will have in revenue to invest in those communities that have been targeted in and, and pay for jobs training and pay for education programs. And, and we need to parole people who are in jail for marijuana arrests. And we need to expunge their records and use some of this tax revenue for them to re-enter. And what I would say is that we're not talking about children smoking marijuana, right? We're talking about adults and we're talking about that effectively marijuana in New York State has been legal for white people for a long time and it's time to make it legal for everybody else. I do believe the benefits outweigh 
the risks. That was the uh, conclusion of a panel of experts. Understood. Last year you but said this you was say? a gateway drug and it wasn't until our campaign started fighting for it that you completely reversed yourself and said the facts on marijuana have changed. Yeah. The Governor, what do you tell your now that was great. I like how she did that there because there's so many corporate Democrats who are being challenged by progressives that adopt more progressive policies and then they try to take credit for it as if they came up with that idea on their own accord. But really the only reason why you adopted that position is because you're being challenged by someone to the left of you had they not challenged you you wouldn't have adopted that position so i hate when they try to take credit for things that they don't deserve credit for and i love that cynthia nixon called him out now one thing i didn't show you in that clip was the framing of the question by moderators which irritated me to no end so the way they framed it was well governor what are we gonna do you know or what are we gonna tell parents with kids who are worried that legalizing marijuana will encourage their children to use marijuana and i mean this is the same way that they framed the question when they posed it to Cynthia Nixon as well, and the answer is simple. If parents are worried that marijuana legalization will encourage their kids to smoke it, they should stop buying into propaganda because teen use actually declined substantially in Colorado after they legalized it. So stop framing questions this way about marijuana. It, it's stupid, it's nonsensical, and it's not grounded in reality at all. And people who make that argument, they wouldn't make an argument like that against alcohol that we should, we should, uh make alcohol illegal because having it legal might encourage your kids to use it. No, we regulate it. We make sure that your kids are not legally allowed to drink alcohol until they're 21. And it's the same thing for marijuana. So I, I hate this framing so much, but I don't want to get carried away on that issue because that's just a whole nother story for a different day. But at the end of the day, I think that Cynthia Nixon did a really great job overall, and throughout the debate, there were clear differences between both candidates and New Yorkers have a choice. They can choose a true progressive who's advocating for bold progressive policies that would absolutely benefit most New Yorkers, or they can have a corporate Democrat who clearly doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care about people. He only cares about his own career, and really that's it. He's an opportunistic corporate Democrat, and I think that Cynthia Nixon did everything she possibly could have to show voters the true Andrew Cuomo. So... At this point, when you have someone like Cynthia Nixon going up against Andrew Cuomo, there's no problem with regard to name recognition. So the only disadvantage that she might have, or the only disadvantages, I should say, is one, she's not an incumbent. There's always, you know, that incumbent advantage for some reason. And two, it's probably the case that Andrew Cuomo is outraising her, although admittedly, I didn't check yet. But I will say this, if you live in New York, vote for Cynthia Nixon, if you vote for Andrew Cuomo and you're a liberal, you just have to accept that you're more conservative. You are conservative because this is an individual who, again, is not politically progressive. He is a centrist at best. So I will leave you with a clip of Cynthia Nixon. This was probably my favorite moment from the debate, passionately advocating for a state-run single-payer healthcare plan. And I wish I could vote for her. I wish I lived in the state of New York just for this election because you're going to see here that she is the real deal. We can we can ensure all of our people here by a single payer Medicare for all system. We can do it better. We can do it cheaper. We can do it with no co-pays, with no deductibles. And 98% of New Yorkers would pay less for their health care than they do now. The same study also found this would nearly triple the state tax rate for an average family from 6% to 18%. That's a family making roughly 100 to 150,000 dollars. 
If you look at, say, what a family now who earns, let's say, 49000 the cost of health care for that family is $17,500. The cost between the individual and the employer would be uh, a sixth of that. What we would have is a payroll tax in order to pay for it. It would be taken out of people's payrolls the same way Social Security is taken out. It would be an overall savings for 98% of New Yorkers and it would be an enormous savings for employers here. It is seen that it could create 200,000 jobs because employers would no longer be responsible for providing health care for their employees. It would drive medical costs and pharmaceutical costs down 40%. We have a, a million uninsured New Yorkers in the state, but we have millions more who are underinsured, who are one diagnosis, who are one accident away from bankruptcy. This is the kind of change that New Yorkers really care about. This is the kind of change that our Democratic Party should be embracing in order to address the incredible inequality here. Health care is a human right. We can insure all of our people, and we can do it at enormous savings not only to individuals and to employers, but to the state itself. I'm here with comedian Ron Placone, who also is the host of Get Your News On with Ron. Ron, how's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? Always good I'm to doing, see you. Yeah, I'm doing very well. It's always good to see you as well. And before we even start this segment, I just have to ask, are you wearing any Nike products on you? I am not. Okay. I, I am not. And, and this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, I realized this. Nike was actually the second boycott I ever had in my life. Interesting. Um, why, yeah. why was that the case? You know what, man? I started, I mean, I wasn't really politically engaged until like I was 18 or 19, like college, basically. Mm -hmm. There were a few things that would kind of fall into my lap that I would pay attention to. The first one was Walmart. I started boycotting Walmart at age 10. Wow. Well, the reason for that wasn't totally altruistic. What happened was Walmart took over the only drive-in movie theater in my neighborhood. There used to be this Um. wonderful drive-in movie theater. They tore down the drive-in movie theater, put in a Walmart. So I hated Walmart because of that. (laughs) Then I got this book called How Walmart is Ruining America, and I read it. I didn't understand most of it because I was 10 years old, but I understood a little bit of it. Like I understood how they were hurting small businesses, how they weren't treating their employees right. Like I understood some of it and I made all my friends read that book. And so it was like, we got to boycott Walmart. So, and then I heard about sweatshops and stuff like that when I was about 12 or so. So, you know, and I was very young and impressionable. So of course I thought, well, Nike's the only company exploiting exploiting people no one else does it surely they're the only one so i I wouldn't wear nike i I would wear fila or adidas or reebok or whatever else and i wouldn't wear nike interesting and you know what i kind of have similar stories so throughout most of my life i realized that i've been inadvertently boycotting nike and that's because uh my family just was super poor like i remember being in third grade and i thought that um, I had got some really cool uh, shoes on, but the kids quickly pointed out that I had on fake Jordans um, because my family couldn't afford the real thing because those are really fucking ex- expensive. So I didn't actually start buying Nikes until I was old enough to get a job and uh, I was working at Subway and I finally did start 
wearing Nikes. But yeah, you know, after finding out about the sweats, the sweatshops, and then they're lobbying for the TPP, it gets a little bit difficult to like pretty much any company in this day and age. But also when it comes to Walmart, I kind of did my own little Walmart boycott for a, a period of time because I did go into a local Walmart and they accused me of stealing or one of the employees did. And I actually was not stealing. Really? You yeah, you for something like that. Did they, did they stop you? Like one of those undercover people? No. So oh, okay. I was with That's my nephew. You can sue for something like that. Like, right. like, like they're really liable for something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it, honestly, it was just offhanded comments by one employee who was suspicious of me because I was in with my nephew and we were just window shopping. So, you know, it was one of the comments like, can I help you find anything? Like, you know, really okay. basically telling me I'm watching you and then can I help you steal anything and just give me, you know, that look. And then, you know, the same individual made a comment similar to that a couple of weeks later when I went back and then I'm like, OK, fuck this. I'm just done. And I did complain, but you know, a few years later, I ended up working for the same Walmart, um, and I realized that all stealing there. No, no, no and I like Mike's giving the inventory. <laughs> I would have stolen from them as an employee, but it's really difficult, <laughs> you know. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so the reason why I ask you, of course, you know, whether or not you were wearing Nike is because I would have to cease this, you know, this conversation immediately if you were, <laughs> given the controversy, because I don't know if you saw, a lot of people are burning their Nikes. Yeah, um, now we have people boycotting <laughs> Nike for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. <laughs> like all the wrong reasons they're boycotting Nike. They finally do something right, and now people mm -hmm. want to boycott them. So I wanted to get your take on this. My take is simply that I think the reason why, or the fact really, that this is even an issue. It speaks to just how snowflakey the right has become as they accuse the left of being snowflakes and too politically correct. Is there not anything more politically correct than getting outraged at the fact that Nike decided to team up with someone who kneeled during the national anthem? I mean, mm -hmm. I can't think of anything that I care less about or am offended less by than that. In fact, I like what Colin Kaepernick did. What's your take on this? So I am definitely pro Kaepernick. I, I think, I, I hope he is successful in his lawsuit against the NFL. Um, yes, he is not the greatest quarterback in the world, but the fact that he has no job at all uh, was definitely collusion. I mean, come on. I, I, he would have been perfect for the Tennessee Titans. I, you don't have to be a football expert. It's ridiculous. The guy had no job whatsoever. I hope he's very successful in his lawsuit. Um, now, there's a little bit of wariness just because you know, and I've had this conversation on the Jimmy Dore show. I've had it on Get Your News On with Ron. Nike is a special kind of ugly. Um, you know, I mean, yes, global capitalism, uh, everybody's guilty. But, you know, Nike, I mean, I feel like Nike, Walmart, um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos. I mean, those are the companies that they're kind of leading the herd as a really, really special kind of ugly. So... Do I have a little weariness when Colin Kaepernick is loaning his brand to them? Yeah, a little bit, because I feel like in some cases, people are giving Nike credit that they really don't deserve. This wasn't an altruistic thing on their part. This was a marketing thing. That's all it sure. was. They're, they're yeah. thinking it's going to help, help their bottom line. But do I love the fact that Colin Kaepernick is now taking money from them to do something positive? Yeah, I love that. Do I love the fact that it's really a big F you to the NFL because Nike is so big and the NFL likes to be besties with Nike and now they're not going to be? Yes, I do like that. Um, and is the right-wing outrage hysterical? Absolutely. freaking So, So, you know, I, I mean, I see 
you know, I, I do have some weariness because it is Nike, and I know some people on the left, uh, they share that sentiment. But I, I certainly see how the pros outweigh the cons, too, as far as what Kaepernick is doing. So, so that, yeah. that, that's kind of my take on it. You know, I, I do have a little more weariness than some, less than others. Um, and I certainly see that perspective of it. You know, like I, I think I said this on the Jimmy Dore show. Would I feel a little better if it was Adidas instead? Yeah, but then it wouldn't be as a, as effective because Adidas isn't as big. So right, you know, no, I'm I'm 100 with you there. It's like anytime a large multinational corporation does something that is positive or they do something positively to affect social change specifically, I get excited. But then that excited is quickly killed by the thought, oh yeah, they are basically um, paying individuals in foreign countries slave wages and doing a lot of really shitty things, lobbying government, buying politicians. So yeah, you know, it, it's tough. I think all socialist minded liberals are going to be a little bit conflicted but by and large it's nice to see colin kaepernick kind of get a boost to his career after he was just arbitrarily kind of shut down for doing what he believed in and which was the right thing so i'm i'm with you man um well let me ask you this because uh, do you think there was and uh, you know we're both speculating but do you think there is some altruistic side on nike's part because I mean I don't, and 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 I hope I'm wrong to be honest with you, but but I don't. I, I think despite Colin Kaepernick not even playing, uh, I'm pretty certain his jersey was still one of the top 50 selling jerseys. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, he is a controversial figure, but he also has a lot of support too. I think Nike crunched the numbers and saw that this was valuable for them. The NFL is waning in popularity, partially because of this, for other reasons too, but definitely mm. partially because of their treatment of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, younger people are more progressive-minded. Um, they are, I would argue, less racist in most cases. A lot, a lot of the newer generation, they, they don't even understand that because racism is something that is taught, uh, which is a beautiful thing and should make us optimistic for the future, despite what's in the white house right now. Um, right. so, so I, I don't know. I don't think there's any altruism on Nike's part. I think this is just, mm. they crunched the numbers and it came out like, yeah, it's worth it. Um, yeah, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think you're wrong because <laughs> I think that every single thing that these corporations do is motivated by that bottom line. I I'm sorry. Um, I don't think that they were, certainly they took a stance here, but do I believe they took that stance because it's going to help make them millions, potentially billions of dollars? Absolutely. Or as you would say, absolutely. Because um, even though it's the case that their stock did drop, I believe there's always going to be that long-term boost. I mean, once he starts yeah. selling shoes and whatnot, I mean, the money that they're going to rake in for that with just people going out to buy his shoes to support him and support you know, um, the cause, I think it's going to be huge. So overall, I do believe that there's going to be a long-term payoff. And I don't think you're wrong to question their motives here. Um, it's definitely something that will make them a lot of money. And if not, then, you know, maybe we'll be proven wrong. Maybe they'll they'll stop the campaign if it's not bringing, bringing in cash. But I do think you're onto something here. I think they're doing this because, you know, money talks and uh this is going to help them with that cause yeah but to not just kind of and to kind of like put a positive spin on that part of it and this is a point i think actually jank uger made this point the fact that that's the case is a good thing because that's saying the public opinion is more on team colin kaepernick than not. right 
So that's, right. you know, that's a way to kind of look at it, you know, in kind of a positive light and to not be, you know, not to come off as that like totally like, oh, you lefties can't be pleased no matter what with your ponies and your instant abs. But <laughs> <laughs> right. When when large multinational corporations start adopting social causes, then that's kind of a cue that we're starting to really win the culture war with respect to that particular issue. Because if corporations are adopting a particular policy, you know, um, when it comes to um, social progress, then it's no longer hurting their bottom line, which means we're starting to win. Um, and I, that is a point that Jimmy Dore made that uh, he was talking about how Jen Uger made that point. So now this is really getting meta, and I'm making a point that Jimmy made about what uh, Jen made. Yeah, so, well, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I heard it from Jimmy, too. <laughs> when I referenced that, <laughs> yeah, like, like Jimmy mentioned it on the show, and I was on that show, and I was like, oh, Jen made a good point there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a phenomenal so, uh, point. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Jen and Jimmy. <laughs> So I wanted to get your take. So um, a lot of people know by now that there's this article from the New York Times. I printed it out. It's called, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, um, I'll tell you my response. I kind of dismissed it, admittedly so, because I didn't think there was anything surprising at all. But hours later, after I saw the hysteria that this caused within Trump's administration, I quickly rethought my stance on it. And I am kind of excited about it just because it is causing so much chaos. But by and large, I kind of wanted to dissect portions of this article because there are still sections of it that do irritate me. So I'll kind of give you an example. I underlined particular sections. So um, this is what the individual who is anonymous states. The dilemma, which he, meaning Trump, does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I'm one of them. So to me, this irritated me because it sounds like this person is trying to toot their own horn. And in actuality, they haven't frustrated parts of his agenda because I mean, sure, maybe it would have been worse without them doing that. But within his first couple of days, his very first military raid, he killed a girl, a young little girl in Yemen. He is still droning multiple countries. There's civilian casualties. He's reducing uh, civilian protections in Yemen. So that way we don't have to abide by the rules of war to make sure that there are going to be less civilian uh, deaths and, and whatnot. So I really don't feel like this individual is doing enough and they're kind of tooting their own horn. Am I being too down on this individual, Ron? What do you think about this? I don't think you are being too down on them at all. Um, first of all, thank you for appreciating my op-ed. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get a Netflix special from this shit. I'm telling you, once they know it was breaking me, news, dude, this is hilarious. <laughs> no, no, actually I, I did make uh, on get your news on with Ron. We made a, a top three list of suspects. We're thinking it was either Andy Kaufman, uh, Jim Morrison or Tupac's hologram, not Tupac. Now Tupac <laughs> was a big lefty years ahead of his time, Mike, but Tupac's hologram, that guy's a right winger. I'm pretty, <laughs> so we think it might've been the hologram. Um, no, <laughs> this anonymous op-ed, um, I read it too. And the thing that frustrated me was it's a very common tired story that the right is pushing and they're getting a little help from the corporate democratic establishment, which I actually also consider part of the right. But 
Um, and that is that Trump is some knee jerk, uh, or not knee jerk, but Trump is some exception to the rule that, oh, the rest of us Republicans are pretty sound and moral and, and not outrageous like this. Uh, notice in the op-ed, this person couldn't point to any policy. That's because there is none. Every single policy Trump is about, every other Republican is about. There's not one, the difference between Trump and every other Republican, subtlety. That's it. Trump doesn't have any subtlety. He's a jerk. He's a racist. Uh, and he's just more on the surface about it. So this idea that they're, quote, fighting, like, what are they fighting? What policy are they fighting against? Yeah, I don't find any in that op-ed. There's none in there. On that note, this person literally speaks to civility. He says, we have sunk low with him and allowed our discourse to be stripped of civility. In other words, Donald Trump is the same exact thing, just he's mean. He has mean tweets. Yes. Was it civil to deny Barack Obama a Supreme Court pick that was lawfully his? <laughs> exactly. Was that an example of civility? And now I'm not saying Obama was the victim here. He did nothing to right. fight the pick. Neither did the Democrats. All parties involved are at fault. But was that civility? What's going yeah. on now? Uh, the fast tracking of the judges that was done behind closed doors. Is that civility? The way the Kavanaugh hearing has been handled overall when, when 42,000 pages were dropped the night before. And let's be honest, a lot of this, quote, resistance is just political theater of Cory Booker and Kamala Harris trying to uh, promote their 2020 uh, campaigns. Is, is this civility? None of this is civility. I mean, so... Civility started going away in our politics at around 1980. Uh, this whole idea of civility for your colleagues, that's been gone since Reagan. So this person making it out like we had some, some nice, friendly, hunky-dory, bipartisan, quote-unquote, process before Trump got here, that's just straight-out delusional. Bipartisan these days is code for the Republicans have an awful idea, and Democrats decided they're going to help them sell it instead of just help them sell it behind closed doors. That's my hundred percent agree. Yeah, it's it's so frustrating because we all know deep down that if Donald Trump stopped attacking people and stopped attacking his political opponents in such a direct way and on Twitter, they really wouldn't have that big of a problem with him. And another criticism that this individual um, lobs against Trump is that pretty much he he is he's a crazy person. He veers off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants. And his impulsiveness results in half-baked and uninformed and occasionally reckless decisions that, you know, he walks back. He kind of changes his mind all the time. Um, this isn't anything new. We, we see this. So it's not like this is some new revelation that's groundbreaking. That's obvious. But you still decided to work for someone who's clearly mentally unstable. They talked about invoking the 25th Amendment here. But instead, they decided to just try to steer him, you know, in the right direction. This is nothing new. You're, you're preaching to the choir. Everyone who is at least somewhat reasonable sees that Donald Trump is clearly mentally unstable. So I just, I don't, I guess that the problem that I'm having with this article is that this person is basically setting themselves up, I feel like anyways, for a book deal when they get out, you know? Oh, and yeah, dude. I, I'm the individual who was the anonymous source. I'm a patriot. I was standing up for my country, but you're, but you're not. I mean, he's still, or he was at least, um, threatening to annihilate countries via Twitter. He did this to North Korea. He did this relatively recently, you know, with regard to Iran. So I just feel like this person is full of shit. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Well, and you know what? Uh, has anyone heard from Banksy? Another prime suspect. Banksy might yeah. have done this. 
Good. I'm wondering if Melania is potentially someone who would do something like this. Some people have been saying it might be Jared, and and they're not kidding yeah. when they say it. They're sincere in that guess. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I think – and also, and again, I'm, I'm just kind of speculating here. I'm not trying to, like, like cross into, like, conspiratorial lines necessarily. But I wonder if we're going to later find out this isn't even as valid as we're being told mm. it is. I mean, I know that the CNN published a thing tracing back how they got it, and it sounds pretty sound, but the corporate media has been deceived before, uh, mm. plenty of times, actually, more often than not. So yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if we found out that this isn't even that valid. They're like, oh, it came from whitehousegov at gmail.com. We didn't, we, we, who, who would have thought that's fake? You know, like, <laughs> Russia it. did it. You know, like it's, so I wouldn't be shocked if something like that happened either. I, I have a feeling that's unlikely, but, you know, right now. Yeah, you know what? I kind of am with you there because what, what we're seeing here, I mean, any of us, I feel like, who has been following Trump's administration could have written this, you know, because mm -hmm. there's there's really nothing too new. I, I would have, if there's somebody that's a senior official within Trump's administration that is going to write an anonymous article, I would want something a little bit more. And, and certainly, you know, this is, it's still important. Like, I don't want to downplay the significance of this. But it's nothing new. I mean, saying he's mentally unstable, no shit, Sherlock. You're not giving me anything new. Um, so <laughs> I think that even the um, the Bob Woodward uh, book has a little bit more of bombshell revelations than are in this, with the exception of them saying that they were considering trying to invoke the 25th to remove him. But yeah, you know, by and large, I feel like there's really nothing new here. But I, I don't want to get too caught up on this because I do want to ask you, there's been hearings for Brett Kavanaugh throughout the week, and you kind of touched on this. You said that it was political theater. Cory Booker, this is this is something that's getting a lot of play in uh, in mainstream media. He essentially released these documents regarding Kavanaugh. I believe it was 12 pages, maybe 13 pages. And doing so could pose a risk to his career in the Senate. So he could potentially be ousted because of this and removed. So when I saw this, I thought, well, that doesn't matter if you're going to run for president. And my the cynic in me thinks, well, clearly he is confident about his chances because he wouldn't risk his own career if he didn't think he would have anything to gain. What's your take on this? Do you think I'm being too cynical again? Because I I will admit that I've become increasingly cynical over the last, I want to say, a couple of years. But at the same time, I don't think he's doing this for altruistic reasons, just objectively speaking. What do you say about this? Well, Mike, I don't think either one of us are being uh, overly cynical. I think we're both dealing with the reality that since about 2016 onward, uh, some people that we thought were on the same team as us are not on our team at all. Um, mm -hmm. And we're still kind of dealing with that reality, as is pretty much every other person in the country, especially uh, lefty-leaning millennials like you and I, especially yeah. us. We're dealing with that big time. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think there are any altruistic intentions in somebody like a Cory Booker. That, that's not somebody, I mean, you look at what he says and then what he does behind closed doors, i.e. shooting down uh, Bernie Sanders' prescription drug bill, stuff like that. Um, he's not among the more trustworthy out there. And yeah. I, I also think that Democrats aren't doing, I mean, you know, when it came to Garland, the Republicans pulled everything in the book to stall on that, and they succeeded. 
they did, I mean, in this metaphorical football game, the Republicans were double covering. They were blitzing. They were, they were using strategic timeouts. They were faking injuries when they had to. The Democrats didn't even bother putting a defense on the field, comparatively speaking. Um, and they're just saying nice things now. There's so much more they could be doing. They could be refusing to go in for the roll call exactly. vote. They could, be, they could be standing out in protest. And, you know, another thing that I think is kind of the elephant in the room here, you know, the media has talked nonstop about Russiagate for over two years now. If ever there was a time to use that as a political tool to Democrats' advantage, isn't this it? How can you not say this is a tainted process because he's a Manchurian candidate? You know, if you, you know, using that as a political football, this is a Manchurian candidate. He shouldn't even be in the White House. This is not an honest process. We need to at least wait until after the midterms before we move forward with anything like this. He shouldn't get any picks. If ever there was a time, you know, I mean, some people on the left, they, they, dispend, they defend the nonstop Russiagate because they're saying, well, it thwarts Trump's agenda. It stops Trump's agenda. Does it? I mean, if, any, if ever there was a time to use that football, now's the time. And nobody's doing it. Yeah. They're using it to have the FBI look at our Facebook more. They're using it to uh, <laughs> have Mark Zuckerberg tell us what is and isn't free speech. They're using it to demonize independent outlets like RT America. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and saying hi, the Chinese outlet. They're using it for that. But as far as actually doing anything in regards to Trump, I don't think so, other than a couple indictments that were unrelated charges. So, you know, I mean, yeah. if ever there was if ever there was a time to kind of use this political football, now's the time Democrats ain't doing it. Yeah, and I, I will say this, um, even if it's the case that what Cory Booker did was all political theater and was done for self-serving reasons to help his own career, I mean, the fact that he's doing something, it's still important, it still matters, right? But at the same time, it's difficult for me to get enthusiastic about that because it's so transparent. I see right through him. And what really matters is that they're still resisting when the cameras are off. And a story just came out last week, uh, I covered it on my show, that Everyone in the Senate, all Democrats, they, uh, well, Chuck Schumer made a deal to expedite a bunch of federal judge appointments yep. that would have lifetime appointments, and none of them said no, including Bernie Sanders. Um, so it's just, I like, it would mean more if they continued resisting when the cameras were off. We talked about other things they could be doing. We mentioned just not showing up, completely stalling, but bringing you to a point where they had to drag people in. They could be doing that. That would be a much better quote unquote resistance. Mm -hmm. But instead, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are always sitting front and center. Yeah. Why are they doing that? Because that's where the cameras are, baby. That's, that's where, where you get the headlines. Are. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I'm with you there. But um, before we go, I do want to ask you this because. I always talk about um, the need for public broadband on my program, and you are one of the few individuals that actually showed up to city council and you asked your local representatives for public broadband. So if somebody wants to get involved and they want public broadband, what would you say to them? How should they go about this? And also, can you give us a little update on that situation in your area? Yes, I would. I would love to. And thanks for bringing it up. So uh, I think the last time you and I spoke, Mike, uh, I have started a task force here in Southern California. Uh, right now, we're, we're focused pretty heavily in my neighborhood, Pasadena, just because I, I got to start in my own neighborhood because that's where I live and that's right. the easiest place for me to start. Uh, but, you know, we're branching it out, out to other places in Southern California as well. 
Um, what we've done so far, we've showed up to a city hall twice. We were able to get it on a municipal agenda. Um, we got it on a municipal agenda. We showed up and they basically told us we can't afford municipal broadband in this community. Come on. Beverly Hills can afford it, but we can't afford it here in Pasadena. Uh, the private company will take care of us. The words net neutrality weren't even mentioned in the entire presentation. So, uh, you know, I responded and I said, you know, thank you for doing this. I do appreciate it. However, I'm, I'm disappointed with these results. And uh, I don't believe that uh, thorough enough research was done to determine that we can't afford this in Pasadena. I find it hard to believe uh, Lawmont, Colorado and uh, Sandy, Oregon and Chattanooga, Tennessee, all great places, don't get me wrong, but I find it hard to believe that they have some a uh, huge resource that Pasadena, California can't manage. That just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so what we're doing now is we're really trying to do the groundwork to get an actual proposal in city council. And I'm treating this task force like any other task force, meaning uh, electoral politics will be involved some at the local level. I'm trying to recruit people to run for city council. I'm even trying to entertain the idea of someone going for mayor. Uh, our mayor in Pasadena is not the greatest. I'm not the biggest fan. But um, so so that's kind of where we're at. I, I've been getting emails from people all over the country, which is amazing. And so far, what I offer is, you know, I tell them how we did our task force. I encourage them to start their own in their community. Um, I have shared the script of what I said at my city council, why, how I made the case for municipal broadband. Um, and I share that with anybody that wants it. Um, and then I'm also trying to get some resources. We have someone, I'm going to have someone actually from Tacoma, Washington, kind of your neck of the woods. Hmm. Um, and because Tacoma has a municipal program, they're going to kind of lay out how they got it. What I'm hoping to do with that is have it be a public Get Your News On With Ron episode so that everybody can see it and can benefit from having those resources at their disposal online. Uh, so right now, what our task force is trying to do at this point is to get an actual proposal. Once we have that, we're going to show up to City Hall again, um, and we're going to take it from there. If we get uh, some City Hall folks on our side and can get it on a ballot, that'll be great. If not, we'll have to bypass them to get it on a ballot via signatures. So uh, there's still a lot of legwork to go. But uh, yeah, we started that wheel of turning, and um, you know, you and I both know municipal broadband or, or, you know, public broadband, however you want to put it, that that's the permanent fix for net neutrality. Exactly. Now, you know, and I'm all supportive of the state bills. I, I uh, you know, we have a great state bill here in California. Uh, Scott Weiner, who uh, is supposed to come on my show soon, uh, and is somebody who I have some disagreements with. Uh, but on this issue, he knocked it out of the park. He wrote a fantastic bill and he defended that bill when he had to. Um, mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, some, some, some cable folks came after it he stood his ground. Um, so I applaud him for that and I can't wait to interview him about it. Um, so we've done some great work in California. Hopefully it gets Jerry Brown's signature. However, uh, because the accompanying bill failed, uh, our net neutrality bill will be more vulnerable in court and it will inevitably be taken to court. So, you know, and Mike, even if it's not, we're still going to have this fight every three years. Yeah, you know, we had it in 2015. We're having it again now. It's only a matter of time before the ISPs figure out how to get the Googles and the Netflixes on their side. And then we're fucked. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's time to take the internet out of the corporatocracy's hands and put it in the hands of the people. Exactly. Um, and uh, I really appreciate what you're doing because you're kind of laying the groundwork for what normal citizens can do. It, it doesn't take someone with a platform. Anyone can do it. So if somebody is watching this and they're, they want public broadband, what do you think would be the first step they should take? to get that done and to bring it to their city council's attention, what do they have to do? Show up to a city hall. I mean, I mean, yeah, like it's a that simple, simple. You show up to a city hall. There should be a comment period and you sign up and that's the uh, comment that's that you speak about. That's the cause you speak about. Um, if you're like, I don't speak in public often. I don't know what to say. Ronplacone.com. Feel free to email me. I will send you the exact transcript of what I said. Uh, if you want to say howdy, howdy at the end, you can, uh, you don't have to, but it is in this transcript. <laughs> Um, and, and yeah, and, and, you know, Hey Mike, another thing you mentioned, you don't need a platform to do this stuff, but the more people that have platforms, the better. So Mm -hmm. I would love it if you got more involved. Yes. Yes. In fact, I do want to do that because I feel like in, in taking action in making calls to legislators across the country, um, it really does help people with that confidence. And that's why I really appreciated what you did because it does give people that confidence who are afraid to speak out, who who don't want to go in front of their city council and talk. So yeah, if I if I do that, I will certainly be uh, putting that up on my channel uh, yeah. because I think it, and, it's it's really helpful. Sorry, another thing I was going to add on that is you know a lot of the stuff that we talked about today and that you and I talk about on a regular basis. There are a lot of reasons to be cynical at the level of electoral politics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and and I get that. So I think a way to still kind of influence positive change is to kind of go more towards causes and towards, you know, activism in your community um, and kind of just pick a cause you're passionate about and see what you can do. Some of those causes don't involve electoral politics at all. Some of them, like, you know, municipal broadband does involve it some, uh, but mostly on the local level. So, you know, that, that's a way not just to not only do something really positive, but also kind of keep your own sanity. You know, if all I focused on was the corruption at the highest electoral level, um, I'd be really, really freaking cynical. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I realized there's a bigger picture. And I realized that, yeah, I do have a chance at hopefully doing something really positive with municipal broadband in my own backyard. And mm-hmm. even if I fail, I know that other people across the country are watching and they might get better results. Somebody said their mayor was totally unaware of net neutrality. They showed up at a city hall. This was somewhere in Illinois. They showed up to a city hall. Now their mayor is all about the issue and wants to figure out how to get a proposal out there. So they had they had somebody at the electoral level who was stoked to hear the message. You know, they were a lot luckier than I was in that regard. But, you know, those stories are huge. Those stories help. And, and you know, so even if I fail, maybe other people will succeed. In fact, I know some people will. You yeah. know, I, I mean, if there's efforts in every community in the country, a lot of them are going to succeed. Uh, some of them might not right away. But as soon as some start succeeding, others will follow. So, so it you just, know. It's a matter of getting the ball rolling pretty exactly. much. You know, exactly. and when I go to city council, I'm definitely going to use your script because I think <laughs> what you said was perfect. Well, thank you. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't it need it, but thank you. And I might even include the howdy howdy. It depends. I, I would love it if you did. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't need to. Well, Ron, before we go, tell us what you have going on. Uh, tell us where we can find you, your show, your website, you know, the whole nine yards. 
Totally. Get Your News On With Ron happens every Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Get Your News On With Ron, I like to call it the world's first viewer curated streaming news show. What that means is I log on to the stream, and unlike you, Mike, who has amazing stuff prepared and great monologues, uh, I don't have any of that shit. I got, I got none <laughs> of that. I got none of that. I'm totally, and I say, what do you guys want to talk about? And they start tweeting me the topics they want to talk about. Um, and I, I go in order to the best of my ability. Um, sometimes, and, and it's a fun show. It's a really fun, interactive show and people engage a lot in the chats and, uh, you know, it's a fun way to do and do a, it, uh, some people call it improv news because I'm just seeing all this shit for the first time. Sometimes I stumble over words when I'm reading it because I've never read it before. And it's, uh, it's just a kind of fun way to quote, get your news on. So, so that's a lot of fun. We do that Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific standard time. Every Friday I publish a podcast which is just the highlights throughout the week. So some people that missed a stream throughout the week, this is a good way to catch up on a lot of what we talked about. So the podcast comes out every Friday. You can subscribe to get your news on with Ron on iTunes. Ronplacone.com for my tour dates. Uh, and I got some coming up. In November, I'm going to be in Sacramento, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, which was just announced today, uh, Santa Barbara, California, and my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm going to be there in November. 2019 tour dates are going to be out soon. And, of course, you can catch me over on the Jimmy Dore Show, uh, some TYT stuff, the works. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, man. Always love it. Lately, if you've been watching news clips with progressive candidates and perhaps anyone that mentions Medicare for All, the number one question that they are always asked is, how are you going to pay for it? And thankfully, I have someone here with me today that actually knows how to answer that question. Her name is Andrea Witte. Andrea, welcome to the program. Hi, Mike. I'm a big fan of your show. Happy well, to be on. I'm a fan of you as well. For those of you who don't know, Andrea is an individual who is really rare. She likes math. Um, and <laughs> what's great about Andrea is she can kind of break things down in a way that is really easily digestible. So when she explains math to me, it actually makes sense. Um, so tell us about what you do because you're a graphic designer, you're the founder of Connect the Dots USA, and tell us what your YouTube channel focuses on. Right, so like you said, I'm a, I'm a professional graphic designer for the last 25 years. I've had my own business and I got involved in um, politics and activism during the healthcare fight of 2009 because I buy my own health insurance um, since I started my business. So I'm very familiar with the individual market. And so that's why I got involved. And then I decided we have an education problem. And so I decided just to put my graphic design skills and my love of math to use. And so I created what I call, um, they're easy to understand, easy to share, informative eye candy on today's most complex issues. So that'd be healthcare, the federal budget, and jobs in the economy are my top three. And they are very, very thorough, but they're also very easy to understand for the average person. And you are really great because even certain politicians, I don't know if we can name names, are allowing you to give presentations for them, explaining how we pay for things. Yeah, so um, 
I, I live in Tucson, Arizona, and Raul Grijalva is one of our representatives down here. He's in the my the neighboring district, but I always think of him as my representative because he's just a champion progressive, and he always calls me the professor um, <laughs> when he sees me. So he's invited me sometimes to come during one of his town halls and do a presentation about healthcare or recently about the Trump tax uh, tax scam and just kind of break it down for people in a visual way. Right. And as she as she tells us how we pay for certain things, you're going to see why she's so useful and so helpful. So, Andrea, when it comes to the question, how do we pay for Medicare for all that progressives are always asked? How do you answer that question? <laughs> Okay, well, we can start by um, talking about the fact that about two thirds of all of the spending that we do on healthcare right now is already tax financed. So you sometimes hear that big number, we spend just over $3 trillion a year on healthcare in this country, that's about 18% of our economy. Um, and that's, you know, the next nearest country is about 12%. So we spend an enormous amount on healthcare. So the money's already Already sloshing around in our healthcare system, it's just being spent very inefficiently because of all the different payers and the different programs and the cost sharing, and you've got private and you've got public. But when you realize that two thirds of all of our um, spending is already tax financed, it doesn't sound like that big of a leap anymore. And plus, a Medicare for all system will will save an enormous amount of money um, because you're just going to have one payer. So so right away you're going to save money overall and that will use some of that savings to make Medicare existing Medicare more comprehensive um, and then also will end up net saving money. So right that's the beginning of it we, we're going to get into a lot more details. Can you kind of go over some of like the key points like a lot of people like to cite the new number from the Mercatus study that there is 2.1 trillion in savings. So what do you think, if you can do some bullet points for us, what are the key benefits of switching to Medicare for all in your mind? Okay, so the, the main thing is the moral argument that everyone is now covered. So, and it's not about having just access to insurance, you actually have health care. So the federal government becomes the single payer that pays all the bills. And that's the only difference. The, um, the doctors and hospitals and providers are all still the same. They're mainly in the private market like they are now. It's just we get rid of all the complexity, what I like to call a crazy quilt, because we have such a big hodgepodge of different systems. So, um, uh, so that's like the big thing. So the big thing is we get everybody covered, which with much more comprehensive coverage, and you have much greater choice of doctors and hospitals than most people do now with their insurance, and we net save money. So as you pointed out, we had this right wing libertarian Coke funded group that ironically, they're trying to do a hit piece on Medicare for all and it turns out buried in their main table that it would net save $2 trillion. So we always have to compare to the cost of our existing crazy quilts. So in that, um, that Mercatus study, it was called by Charles Blauhaus, the numbers that you want to compare is he um, in table two, it's uh, row six, because I've been talking about this, <laughs> this um, particular study for a while now, since it came out. If you look at table two on row six, and you total up those numbers, the 
total cost of our current system over that decade, he has at $59.7 trillion. And then you wrote, add up row nine, where he has the total cost of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan as $57.6 trillion. There's the difference of $2.1 trillion. And I have a nice graph, uh, graphic number nine, um, if you want to put that up for your viewers, yeah. that shows it really nicely. Um, and you can see where the savings come from. So this is from a, a libertarian funded study. So it's, if anything, they're going to be pretty measly with the estimated savings from Medicare for all. And even they had to admit <laughs> that it saves $2 trillion overall. So of course we can figure out a way to, um, to fund something that costs less than what we're spending now. It's just a matter of shifting some of the money around. It's not new money, it's just shifting money from how it's being spent now by households, employers, and state and local governments. And we're just gonna be shifting that to the federal government, adding on to what the federal government already spends in our healthcare system for things like Medicare and Medicaid and all these, the federal programs. So um, we apply those that existing spending. So in that uh, Koch funded study, he then applies all the existing federal spending of about $22 trillion. And then he says, okay, then the federal government needs to raise another $32 trillion on top of that to fund Medicare for all. So he wanted to focus the attention on that 32 trillion, but that was just the increase in federal spending. It wasn't the total. And my, the first response when somebody says, oh, well, Medicare for all is gonna increase federal spending. Your first response should just be, duh, of course it's going to increase federal spending. That's the point of single payer. <laughs> But it's right. so because all the spending is going to shift to the federal government, but you're not going to have it's going to replace the spending that we are, is currently being done very inefficiently by households and employers and state and local governments. So those are two different numbers. And unfortunately, people are getting really confused by that 32 trillion because the corporate media, the insurance industry, the certainly the right wing, they wanna focus on that big number of increase in federal spending and they don't want you to know about that Medicare for all saves overall. So this graph, I sort of was inspired. Sometimes I see graphs that are really good. And this one from Matt Bruning of the People's Policy Project, he's just been doing amazing math checking on this Koch study. And, and he was one of the people that discovered that 2 trillion in savings in the table. And he's just been correcting a lot of bad math. So I thought this graph really simplified it. So over on the left, you see our current status quo healthcare system, what I call the crazy quilt, and yellow represents federal health spending. So you can already see the federal government is spending $22 trillion in our current system, right? And then red represents all other spending. So that would be by households, buying private insurance, um, cost sharing for deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance. You've got employers buying private insurance, and then you have state and local governments um, buying 
private insurance for their public employees and also uh, funding things like their portion of the Medicaid program. So Medicaid is the program for low income people to distinguish it from Medicare, which is our current program for seniors 65 and older and the disabled. So, so anyway, so the red then shows all the other spending that's going on in our current system. All right. So now when you look at this is the, the Coke funded analysis of Bernie Sanders plan, you see, yes, the yellow goes way up, but what goes way down? The red. OK. And you see um, you see the growth in the yellow. There is that thirty two point six trillion that they're fixated on. But the important point that they don't want you to notice is that the total uh, size of the bar, the height of the bar, yellow plus red together is shorter under Medicare for all because there's your two trillion in savings. That's such a helpful graph. Yes, that, so uh, yeah, Matt Bruning did a good job. On that. <laughs> so, and then where progressives are making the mistake in, in the calculation is they're looking at that growth in the yellow bar. So you mm -hmm. see that 32 trillion and they're trying to compare that to the total and they're going, okay, the 32 trillion plus I know I've heard 2 trillion savings and then they're adding the 32 to the two going 34. But wait a minute, last week I was saying that total spending on our current system over a decade is more like 49 trillion. So how did it go down? So you see where the math mm -hmm. got like all messed up. And right. a lot of it is because of the headlines, the headlines that say uh, Medicare for all is going to cost $32 trillion. That's a really weird and confusing way of talking now that you see this graph. That's just the increase in federal spending. And even in the Mercatus study, he very clearly labels that increase in federal spending. But the way the media is spinning it um, is to say Medicare for all costs 32 trillion. No, it actually costs 57.6 trillion, but our current system costs 59.7. But you can see how people are getting confused. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make this an analogy in one of my videos about how weird it is to talk that way because it's just not, that's just not a correct way to speak. The headlines, if you wanted to do a hit piece, you would just say Medicare for all would increase federal spending by 32 trillion according to right. the study, right? Mm -hmm. That would be at least accurate according to this study, but it wouldn't be misleading. Like the Medicare costs 32 trillion and that's what's throwing everyone. And so I made this little analogy, uh, a little word problem. So get ready for a word problem. Uh -oh. um, let's say, I'm gonna make the math really easy. Let's okay. say um, Mary is thinking of moving from apartment A to apartment B and that's going to cost her another $500, with, which represents a 50% increase. Working backwards, that means apartment A is $1,000 and apartment B is $1,500. It would be really weird and misleading to say apartment B costs Mary $500. That's mm -hmm. the change, that's, that's not the total, but that's kind of like analogous to the headline, Medicare for all costs 32 trillion. That's the increase in one thing. It's not the, and it's not the total. And it's also not, for example, Mary's uh, total monthly living expenses. So now to continue analogy, let's say that I give you a little more information. 
Um, it turns out that apartment B, unlike apartment A, includes all utilities. There's a, a, a fitness center um, in on site, and it includes a washer dryer in the apartment. And it turns out not only can Mary get rid of her gym membership, she can also get rid of all of her car expenses because now she can get an easy pass on the nearby metro line. All right, so now I give you a little more information that her total monthly living expenses with apartment B are, is 2300 and and her living expenses, if she stays in apartment A, is $2,500. And then if I ask you what's the difference in the living expenses, well, it's a net savings of $200 if she moves. So even though her rent went up, that's the federal spending part, her total monthly expenses went down. And notice how we didn't invoke the $500 when we did the calculation of the change in her monthly living expenses. So that's steady you know, had really measly estimates of savings with Medicare for all, because mm -hmm. obviously they didn't want to be too generous about how you, you save in administrative efficiencies and negotiating drug prices. And single payer advocates, hey, we'll take the two trillion, that's great. <laughs> but Himmelstein and Woolhandler, who are co-founders of Physicians for a National Health Program, um, they put out an article, and I've done some graphics on that as well, that say, oh, yeah, but you're missing another $10 trillion in savings, Mercatus study. Um, exactly. And they, they break those out. So, for example, they say um, in that study, he is he based it on assuming that we can get the overhead on insurance down from 13% right now to 6%. But our existing Medicare system operates at an, an under 2% overhead. Right. And that's how almost every other civilized country that has a single payer type system has less than 2%. So if you put plug that in to the equation, you save another $2.9 trillion over those 10 years. And then he and then he doesn't even in the Mercatus study, he doesn't even account for all the administrative efficiencies on the provider side, meaning doctors and hospitals now can really cut their overhead. Just think about how much time they spend calling insurance companies and billing and all that stuff, right? Uh, Mercatus, the, Blau the Charles Blauhaus and the Mercatus study doesn't even factor that in. <laughs> And that's like another $5.4 trillion in savings if you add up all of that's that administrative huge. efficiencies. And then the study also doesn't really factor in really negotiating down the prices of drugs, just like every other civilized country does, as well as our Veterans Administration and Medicaid programs do. He, he just estimates that we're going to switch to more generics. Um, mm. and, and get the price of generics down, but never really tackles getting down the, the cost of these brand name drugs, you know, the $600 EpiPen and all of these ridiculous, these prices. So if you factor that in, you get another 1.7 trillion in savings. And so that's how they come up with, um, you know, $10 trillion more in savings. And I think just for your viewers, if you wanted to show them um, graphic number 12, so I've got the Mercatus Blauhaus study on the left showing where those savings come from. And he's already factored in increased utilization of healthcare now that everybody's got coverage, the more comprehensive um, benefit package. And so I've got that on the left side so you can compare. And then this was an article that Himmelstein and Wilhandler, who do a lot of studies and articles about single payer, 
So I kind of just summarized that over on the right. Now they may be a little more generous, but you know, we can kind of split the difference. The important thing is that even this libertarian study admitted that we can cover everyone with much better benefits, much greater choice of doctors and hospitals, and even save money, whether that's two trillion, five trillion or 12 trillion. That's a huge bargain. And so, so yeah. 10 trillion is essentially a number that would be accurate if we wanted to pitch Medicare for all. And let's say I'm Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Chris yeah. Cuomo says, how are you going to pay for Medicare for all? If I say 10 trillion, that is technically correct, according to the uh, David Himmelstein. Okay. Now, that's not an extensive study where I can dig into tables and things. So this was just an article they wrote based mm. on other assessments. So I'd like to try to dig into it more. And we can dig into a, another study that I had teed up um, by okay. uh, Gerald Fre uh, Friedman, who he's one of the few economic um, economists who's willing to courageously put together not just how much savings would get generated, but then put together a package of tax revenues to make up the difference, right? So we hear we heard from the Mercatus study, oh, okay, you're gonna have to raise 32 trillion. But wait a minute, if we have another 10 trillion in savings, then we only have to raise 22 trillion. Right. Mm -hmm. You see how that works. So that's why pushing back a little bit on that, hey, I'll take the two trillion, like Bernie's been saying, that's great. But they're trying to say we need to raise an additional 32 trillion in federal. Whereas if you show more savings, then maybe you only need to raise less than that. Maybe it's right. more like what Bernie's saying, 16 trillion or 20 trillion. But remember, whatever we're raising, we're getting rid of all we're replacing. So it's not new money introduced in the system, we're replacing. Um, and so always keep that in mind. So even in the Mercatus study, when he says we have to you know, raise federal spending by 32 trillion, but even he admits we're decreasing spending by 34.7 trillion by households, employers, and state and local governments. So it's just an accounting shift. It's, it's so easy to get misled because there's, yeah. the way that you explain it makes so much sense. Um, now, do you have the, the Friedman study? Yeah, so um, so the Friedman study is going to be, well, um, first, if you want to pull up graphic number one, this is where I talked about, you know, don't get scared about, oh, how are we going to do all this? Because like I said, two thirds of all spending, right, healthcare spending in this country is already financed by taxpayers. So you have the obvious one, almost half of all the spending is public spending for programs like Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act subsidies, the VA. So all of that you can see there. But the part that people miss that isn't as obvious is you have another six and a half percent, a couple hundred billion dollars, that is where state and federal governments buy private insurance plans for their public employees. That gets classified as private spending in some charts, when it really, it's totally tax finance. And a lot right. of that is at the state level. So that would be for people like school teachers and people that are state level employees. Um, and then the one that's even more hidden is those tax subsidies for private insurance. And, and the big one is uh, the employer provided health insurance. So the employer 
you know, on the on average, an average family plan is $19,000. I think that's this year. The employer is kicking in $13,000 and the employee is kicking in nearly $6,000. Just think about that. And of course, that's ultimately coming out of everybody's wages. But that employer takes that $19,000 as a tax it's expensed out, right? So it doesn't show up on when they file their taxes, but it never shows up as income for the employee. So, that, so that's called a tax expenditure or tax subsidy. And that adds up, you can see from this chart, to another 10% of that total spending. Um, so when you look at it that way, okay, well, two thirds of all the spending is already tax financed. So we're just going to do a little reshuffling. That's <laughs> right. what we're doing. So we're going to take all that existing money and, and just redirect it into expanding existing Medicare and, and improving that uh, and, and enhancing or improving it. And I say that because people on existing Medicare, like my husband, he's a little bit older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, they will tell you that existing Medicare, while we love it, we want to improve it at the same time we expand it. So we want to get rid of the gaps. There's some deductibles and cost sharing that cause people to have to get a supplement that might cost them 100, like my husband's is 135 a month. And, and then um, Medicare doesn't cover things like dental, hearing and vision. And so dental can really add up for people. So part of the movement and part of all of these bills that we talk about, whether it's HR 676, the gold standard bill in the house or Bernie's um, S1804, which is his current Senate bill, all of them include improving, enhancing existing Medicare. So that's sort of like built in already when we talk about Medicare for all. So, so there won't right. be any premiums in Medicare. There'll be no deductibles, no co-insurance. And then we're going to have benefits are going to be much more expansive. So dental, vision, hearing are the ones that come immediately to mind. So Right. Now you okay. mentioned HR 676 is the yeah. goal standard. Um, if we can get to why it's the gold standard, but Bernie Sanders bill isn't as good, what are the differences there? So the main differences, they're both very good, but the main differences are that HR 676 would start January 1st of the first year when it's passed. So if it was passed in this year, it would start January 1 of 2019. Bernie's plan has a four-year rollout, gradually lowering the eligibility age and the first First year it would go to 55 and it would also include children zero to 18 and then the next year to 45 and the next year to 35 and then everybody would be included and in the interim people would be able to uh, you know buy into existing medic into the medicare program um, kind of like a public option so he has that in there I don't personally have a problem with it in theory, um, you know, to gradually do it, but we saw what happened with the four year rollout of the Affordable Care Act. And you just set yourself up for sabotage and, uh, you know, the, the, the right wing and the corporations trying to undercut it. And also you don't see the full benefits, just like with Obamacare, when a lot of the good things didn't happen until the fourth year, right? When pre-existing condition discrimination went away and all that stuff. And so I just think it's a mistake. We've waited long enough. It's time to just rip the bandaid off this right. and, you know, and just start and, and get this done. So that's more my feeling about it. The, um, the second probably bigger issue is um, that Bernie leaves long-term care 
at the state administered level. So right now, long-term care is kind of a shared federal state program, and it's done through usually Medicaid, um, and the states administer it. It also means they means test it. So most people that are in nursing homes right now, they've done a spend down to, of all of their assets, and then they qualify for um, you know, long-term care and Medicaid, because most people cannot afford long-term care policies. They're very expensive and um, to maintain. So, so I think those are the two biggest ones. A, a third one is that HR 676 would um, forbid any investor-owned medical facilities, whereas Bernie's plan still allows them. And as long as you have Wall Street mucking around in our healthcare system, they're always going to be putting pressure on hospitals and doctors' practices to just keep cutting services. And, you know, and so I just think that that one's a mistake too. So our goal is to kind of just get Bernie back to his 2016 campaign plan, which was more similar <laughs> to HR 676 and not go the other way. Cause there are some rumors going around that there are people in the house that are trying to go the other way and water down HR 676 to look more like Bernie's plan. And my feeling is this isn't the time for compromising. This is the time for articulating what we really, really want and fighting for that. And if then, if we get down to the wire at the very end, <laughs> then we're not going to do the Obama thing where we compromise before uh, we get to the <laughs> get to right. the, the table, right? So, so that's so those are the main differences, I would say. Okay, that that's very helpful. Now, one yeah. thing that I want to because. As we go through all these numbers and whatnot, there's so many selling points for Medicare for All, but I do want you to go over an error that was made by a lot of progressives, myself included, because one article from the Daily Coast posited that Medicare for All would result in $17, uh, $17 trillion in savings. That is factually incorrect. You actually reached out to the author of that article. He has since corrected it, and it is yes. a number that misleads a lot of progressives. So can you explain why that was wrong? This was the mistake that we talked about before of trying to compare an increase in something federal spending to a total uh, national health expenditure. So we kind of went over this a little bit before and completely coincidentally, the number 32 trillion <laughs> is involved. <laughs> Even though this was for an earlier decade, the Mercatus report that we were talking about earlier, the Koch funded one, um, that one is from 2022 to 2031. And the reason they started then is because Bernie's plan has that four year rollout. So even theoretically, it couldn't even start be fully implemented until 2022. This, this Daily Coast blog was based on a complete misreading of a 2016 Urban Institute report that was analyzing Bernie's plan from the campaign. And so the, the Daily Coast blogger actually clipped this table, like the way I have it here, except without my red circles on it. And, I, and so when I kept hearing the 17 trillion savings number from a bunch of YouTubers, I was like, boy, that number is a lot bigger than anything I've seen in all my studies of this. So I immediately went to the link and then I'm reading this art and I see the table, I was like, that's not what the table says. <laughs> so he just completely missed what was very clearly marked as an increase in federal spending. He misunderstood that as a total. And then he went and wrote this diary, figuring out that our current system over that decade of 20, I think it was 2017 to 2026 would cost 49 trillion. He subtracts the, the 32 trillion from the 49 goes 17 trillion in savings. 
Well, he didn't even need to do all that work because Mike, if you look at the line item in that same table that he clipped right above, it says that that overall spending will increase by 6.6 trillion. So he didn't even know, need to go figure out all these totals. It was already there that this was a complete hit piece on single payer, which is why <laughs> single payer advocates at the time in May of 2016 criticized it immediately as underestimating savings, overestimating increase of utilization of health care, and then actually not analyzing Bernie's actual plan. Right. <laughs> they left in a bunch of private Medicare Advantage plans that Bernie clearly said are not going to be part of the new plan. So, so that, that report was roundly criticized, and it belongs in the dustbin of history, and I wish I never had to bring it up again. <laughs> but because this Daily Coast blogger completely misread it, it was like, people stop saying this. I, I don't like to overpromise and underdeliver. Mm -hmm. I'd rather underpromise and, and overdeliver is always my philosophy. Absolutely. So yeah, and I think he was mortified when I sent him the email. Right. And right, I pointed sure. it out because he did immediately, you know, I think it was the next day he emailed back and he's like, oh. You're right. You know, th thank you for pointing this all out. And the interesting thing he said was, I think I was misled by the headlines at the time. And he quoted one that said, Bernie care would cost $32 trillion. Mm, and that, that gets number. us back to exactly <laughs> why these, the propaganda in the corporate media is trying to mislead by focusing on that number because they don't want to focus on the totals. Mm -hmm. And just to go back to that Mercatus study, Charles Blauhaus must have noticed when after he finished the analysis, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't going to look good to my co-funders. So what's weird, he doesn't total up certain rows. Like he totals up certain, he's got 10 numbers for each of the years. He totals up the 32 trillion one, and he even totals up the savings one, but he doesn't total up like the total of our current system. It's just weird. Like why? So of course I go in there and I totaled them up and Matt Bruning mm -hmm. did the same thing. And, and, and Bernie, of course, did that too. Um, so, so yeah. So when he comes back and tries to say, no, that's not what my report said. You're, you're misrepresenting. No, that's exactly what your report said. You just don't like it. Mm -hmm. And those aren't Bernie's assumptions because if Bernie was going to make assumptions, he would as more assume that Medicare for all would say five trillion or ten, you know, ten or twelve trillion. Why is he going to assume two trillion? That right. was Charles Blauhaus's assumption. So he's just gotten himself in a pickle now, and he's just trying to, <laughs> to, to divert attention to the thirty-two trillion. So that's the explanation of that. And the Urban Institute, and this is why you have to be careful of what I call fake friends. You know, people mm -hmm. that might normally be in alignment with you. The Urban Institute does some good work, and they're they're about expanding healthcare through Medicaid, and you know, kind of working within our current system, but. If you look at some of their podcasts and their writings, they are definitely not single payer advocates. Right. You yeah. Know? And you're you're gonna find the same thing with people like, you know, groups like AARP that are normally for you know, seniors and expanding Medicare and, and, and those kinds of things and protecting those programs. But remember, AARP licenses their name to sell Medicare supplements and Medicare Advantage plans, which those things go bye-bye because you won't need to buy those when the you know Medicare becomes as comprehensive as we're going to make it. So you have to be careful 
about people that are normally in alignment with you on right. other things may not be your friend on this issue. And what's great is that if somebody has a question about Medicare for all and the cost, almost every time a new study comes out, you dig in immediately. Nope. So I'm on it. <laughs> you told me about the Mercatus study before I'd even seen it that morning. I was like, what? What? There's another study. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I love digging into white papers and then trying to turn them into pretty colorful graphs. Um, and they're very pretty. Like they're very pretty. Jigsaw puzzles or play video games. And I like digging into white papers. <laughs> and I like that you're confident. I know before you told me that if anybody wants to check your math, you have Absolutely. the sources there. Yeah. They can they can try, but it's it's rock solid. You you know your numbers. I, I do my best. You know, we all make mistakes. And certainly if somebody points something out or, or you know, sometimes it might be that it's not clear. Like when mm -hmm. I post something or something people misinterpret. And I was like, oh, I'll make that a little clearer, you know, when I repost it. So I'm always trying to look for feedback. So just before, you know, I, I don't want to make sure that we do go and show what a tax package would look like. Because I think yeah, that's I what do people see that. need. So yeah, so go ahead and then pull up. Um, graphic number two. So this is um, Gerald Friedman, who is the one I said is the courageous one who's the only one I've seen besides Bernie who's willing to put together just a, a package of those revenue raisers. So this was a study he did that's posted on the Physicians for a National Health Program. And it is a little bit old. He did it in 2013. So it's for the sample year 2014. So it's a little old, but you know, the numbers would just all go up uh, proportionally. Um, so what you do is you start with the cost of our current system. So all that money sloshing around the system, about 3.2 trillion. And then you're going to subtract the savings from Medicare for all, which is about 600 billion, 500 billion in those administrative efficiencies now that we just have one payer and we don't have all these different, you know, insurance companies and pro programs that doctors and hospitals and providers have to deal with. And we have that overhead of only 2% instead of an average of 3%. So that's where that 500 billion comes from. And then Medicare is now going to negotiate the drug prices like every other country does and like the VA does. So that saves just over 100 billion dollars right there. Okay, so we've got 600 billion savings. We're gonna use some of that savings, about 350 billion to do, to make existing Medicare more comprehensive, get rid of the deductibles, add in dental and all that good stuff we talked about, um, and, and then expand it to everybody. So that's what's called increased utilization. Now that everybody's got a coverage, you're gonna see you know, some increase in utilization of care. Um, and then we're going to increase those Medicaid payment rates. Remember, those are the, for the program for low income people. And those rates are too low because only about 60 percent of doctors accept Medicaid patients, whereas 96 um, 96% of all doctors in this country take traditional Medicare and just about every hospital in the country accepts traditional Medicare. So that's another big benefit of Medicare for all is you, like my husband right now, he's on traditional Medicare. He can go to any doctor or hospital in the entire country. He's not limited to Tucson, Arizona, like a lot of your private plans and even your Medicare Advantage plans are. So that's just a huge benefit for people. All right, so so we spent, so we're using up, that's why we want those savings because we're gonna use those to port mm -hmm. to, to get the comprehensive, comprehensive coverage, the better coverage and expanding to everyone. And then we have about $50 billion in transition costs to help displace workers, you know, people who are now working in the insurance industry or in billing departments and that kind of thing. Um, and then the, uh, the money to buy out those, gradually buy out those investor owned facilities, okay? And then 
so we had 600 billion in savings, we subtract $400 billion in these costs, and what do we have? A net savings of $200 billion, and Medicare for all for the one year sample um, comes in just under 3 trillion. Okay, so those are the two numbers you can compare, right? We don't cross compare. <laughs> We're not right. comparing the increase. All right, yeah. So now when we go over to the other side, that's where I put the revenue sources. So. You've got, um, remember, we're going to take, we're going to apply all existing federal spending, all that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not starting from zero, like people are like, we're starting from scratch. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're starting from about $1.4 trillion in federal spending, okay? And then we're going to claw back, um, I think, I, 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 we're going to claw back those tax expenditures of about $260 billion that we talked about, since there's not going to be any employer-provided health insurance. So we claw that back in revenue. And then there's still going to be a little bit of household spending for things like over-the-counter drugs, some elective and cosmetic procedures. Um, and, you know, that's about $63 billion. So it's just a fraction of what households are spending now. So, you know, 98% of all healthcare spending will now be paid by the federal government, but there's just going to be a little bit. So we put that in there. So then we need the revenue raiser. So then we need some new federal revenue of about 1.4 trillion. And I like to call these replacement revenue, right? Because we're replacing all that money that's currently being spent on private insurance, co-pays, deductibles, and, and state and local spending on Medicaid and the like. All right. And then he offers up this package um, and, and you could come up with something different, but this gives an idea of what would work. Uh, and that would be consistent with the framework of HR 676. So he has a 3% payroll tax on the employer side for income under 53,000, 6% on income over, over 53,000. So if, if you were somebody who made 54,000, it would just be 6% on that last thousand. So it's a marginal, what's called a marginal bracket. And remember, this is going to be on the employer side. Okay. And then there's going to be an, a 6% income surtax on high incomes over 225,000 and on non-work income, non-wage income like capital gains and dividends. And then a little financial transaction tax on, on Wall Street. And so when you add all those together, there's your $1.4 trillion. And he ends up having a little surplus, a little cushion of about $154 billion extra to play with there. So, so that's how it works in a one year. And then I did find more recently, if you go to the next graphic, which is graphic, um, is that graphic four, where he basically took that and he did a 10-year uh, projection on it. So this is pretty similar, and I'll just say it quickly. So in this case, the cost of the existing system, um, and, and we're looking at a little older decade. So these numbers can swing wildly if you're looking at 2022 versus 2016. I mean, you're, when you're talking trillions of dollars and you even just have just healthcare inflation in there, you know, medical inflation. So that's why it's very difficult to cross compare. You have to sort of keep your wits about you because know? um, right. you're going like, well, why is it only 43 trillion? Well, it's an earlier decade. Mm -hmm. You know, we have 59 trillion, we have 49 trillion. Now this is a little earlier decade. So the numbers swing just on our current system. I mean, nothing to do with Medicare for all. So we start with 43 trillion. We subtract this again, the savings from Medicare for all. And over a decade, it would be 9.6 trillion because now you also have, you're slowing the rate of growth, which is huge in medical inflation. 
Um, and then, and then we have to add back in just like we did in the one year version, you add back in four and a half trillion for making existing Medicare more comprehensive and expanding it to everyone and all that good stuff we talked about. And then you have the net cost of Medicare for all is th about 38 trillion. So that's a net savings of $5 trillion. And then you go over to the other side again, and you apply all current federal spending, including those tax expenditures for you get $22 trillion, you're going to apply that little bit of household spending for over the counter drugs, just under a trillion. And so then that means you need to raise 17.6 trillion in what I call replacement revenue at the federal level. And that's a very different number than 32 trillion. You see how that works? Right? <laughs> I mean, this is a little earlier decade, but still, that's and so then he he comes up with then that raises he's got about uh, just under forty one trillion so he's got a cushion there of three trillion, um, I, I I you know so that kind of gives you the idea of for somebody who wants to see how it would be paid for now you and I like to talk about um, this question never gets asked for other spending like mm -hmm. increasing military spending by $80 billion, all these wars, all the tax cuts, the corporate welfare, the bailout of the bank. No one ever asked, how are you going to pay for it? So Never. this just seems to be reserved for progressive priorities or programs that actually help regular people, um, regular Americans with health care and education. So, um, and my interesting question, I've been reading more and learning more about modern monetary theory, whether, you know, that seems to be how spending operates for the rich and the powerful, that mm -hmm. they just, Congress just creates money by passing legislation. Yeah. <laughs> so according to modern monetary theory, I guess we don't even need to have the revenue raisers. We just pass legislation and yeah. the money just goes out. <laughs> so that would be a good question for Stephanie Kelton or somebody way more versed, but I'm kind of studying that. Um, you know, to because I know I, I've seen people say, Andrew, we don't need to raise any of this extra revenue because modern monetary theory. Mm -hmm. So, but even if, even if not, like you have your basis covered. Yeah. You clearly exp explain that. Yes, obviously we can pay for Medicare for all, and in fact, it's not even that difficult. You just exactly. made it super simple. <laughs> yeah. And the important thing to keep in mind, if you want to go to graphic number five, you know, we talk about all these macro numbers and some people's eyes might glaze over. And um, I love this stuff. And, and to me, I find it very comforting. I find numbers very comforting, especially in this chaotic world. I like things yeah. to add up and I like to, um, but the important thing for if you're just talking to your neighbor is not to get involved in all these macro numbers, but just to say that the average family, you know, making about $57,000 is going to save nearly $7,000 a year compared to what they're currently spending on health care. Um, and, um, you know, the, and then Bernie's plan, he's got it the way he structures his taxes. And I do have a graphic on that too. Um, if you wanted to pull up number seven, so he kind of just puts together when he released his 2017 plan, sort of a menu of options of things that add up to $16 trillion, some, you know, favorite progressive um, revenue raisers. So he's got a little bit different mix, a seven and a half percent employer side payroll tax. And 
And the average employer who's providing health insurance would, would net save $9,000 compared to what they're currently spending. So the average right now is $13,000 on the employer side for those premiums. And so this is a win for the employers that are currently providing health insurance. They don't have to have all that headache. They net save money. But for you know, employers like Amazon and Walmart who have been screwing over their employees and dumping people on the Medicaid system, they're going to be kicking in the seven and a half percent. Oh, woe is me, right? <laughs> so, and then Bernie's got like a four percent uh, income tax on taxable income. So, I kind of like that one because I was thinking like with people like my husband who he doesn't have any payroll because he's retired. So, you know, and he's not over that high income. So, I'm like, he goes from paying $350 a month in premiums for all the different things, his part B Medicare premium, his supplement, his dental, pre you know, to now all of a sudden he doesn't contribute anything. So I kind of like having a little income tax in there for people that we can well afford to pay something, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that sure. would be okay. So that kind of gives you, gives a, a, another menu of different kind of revenue raisers that Bernie puts together. Um, and he focuses, when you hear Bernie talk, he focuses on that the average family is going to save $4,400, you know, mm -hmm. the way Bernie's going to save $4,400 compared <laughs> to what currently spending, right? We have to do the Bernie <laughs> That's a perfect and the average employer is going to save $9,000. You're going to net <laughs> save. <laughs> so um, I think we, let's see, if we had anything else um, of the graphics I put together. Uh, so the other thing is uh, when people say we can't afford it, I like to say we can't afford our current crazy quilt system. This is graphic number 13. I kind of did a snapshot of, uh, and, and I have graphics going over each one of these numbers, but I thought this is kind of a nice snapshot that people can, can share. So we can't afford our current system, either economically or morally, the more important thing, morally, we can't afford this. So you see, we spend $3.3 trillion a year, um, and that's 18% of our economy, uh, and two thirds of that being tax finance, that's over works out to over $10,000 per person, which is more than twice the average of all other civilized countries. Um, we saw, you know, over a decade, that's, uh, if you're looking at 2018 to 2027, that's our current system, 49 trillion over that later decade, it's nearly 60 trillion. That's our current system. The average employers paying $19,000, uh, or the average employer plan is $19,000 with the employee paying about 30%, about 6,000 and the employer paying 13,000. We talked about, we have over $500 billion in just waste of paperwork and headache. We have 31 million people still uninsured, completely uninsured, and probably another 40 million people underinsured where they can't afford the deductibles and copays, so they still don't go to the doctor. That translates into about one in a thousand of the uninsured die each year just because they didn't get to the doctor quick enough or the hospital, and so that's 28,000 people uh, dying, and then and then. Um, uh, 600, about 600,000 bankruptcies a year. You know, the majority of bankruptcies have at least in part are due to medical bills. So, so mm -hmm. this, can you imagine if we just had Medicare for all and you don't have to fill out paperwork, <laughs> figuring out what your insurance is going to pay, whether it's in network or out of network, whether you're going to get a surprise bill, like the, the guy who just had a heart attack, 
went to an out of network emergency room. <laughs> and did, I don't know if you heard that story yeah. and his insurance, he was insured. He was a school teacher. The insurance paid $55,000 for what he needed done, which was more than the average for that procedure in those days in the hospital. And then they balance billed him $108,000 because the hospital wasn't in network after they told mm -hmm. him, don't worry about it. He's on his, in the hospital bed, having a heart attack. Yeah. I mean, Which most people, I think normal people probably wouldn't be thinking about insurance yeah. in the midst of something like that. Yeah. So how can you put a price on just the relief, the just the lots and lots of peace of mind of not having to worry about all of that anymore? I mean, I'm very healthy, but I always worry about these out of I do all my due diligence, but you always worry that some out of network anesthesiologist or pathologist or somebody you don't even see is going to touch you and then you're going you're gonna get some bill that's like what yeah it's it, you, the yeah. way i think the main takeaway after seeing all these slides and whatnot is we have to change the narrative from how do you pay for it to how can we afford not mm -hmm. to switch to medicare for all um the one thing that i want to ask you that i think maybe we can end with is okay. what your advice would be um to someone like alexandria or um Ayanna Presley or Rashida Tlaib, how would they answer the question um, if it's asked on CNN and they only have like a minute? Yeah. How would what would you say to them? What would you touch on? What would you emphasize? Because obviously you're not going to be able to get all of this information in there. Um, right. How would you answer that question if you could condense it all down? Yeah. So I think the first thing with which Alexandria did beautifully in her recent interview with Chris Cuomo is to push back on this. How are you going to pay for it? Question that uh -huh. point out. You never ask that for all of these other things when it comes to the corporate welfare and the wars and the increase in military spending and the tax cuts. You never ask that. You never ask the pay for question. So I think that's a really good way to start just to just point that out. Like the, the corporate media is so obsessed with the fake neutrality. Oh, we have to mm -hmm. treat both sides the same, but they go overboard. But somehow or another, they don't ask the pay for question. Huh? Mm -hmm. I want maybe because they get all this m advertising money from big pharma. Yeah, <laughs> it might be and, as if they have an agenda. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So that would be the the first thing I would do, and then um, and then I, I I wouldn't get in, I would I would emphasize the savings, which mm -hmm. I think Bernie, if you watch what Bernie does, when he emphasized that two trillion savings, boy, is that pissing off Charles Blauhaus in the <laughs> 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 because what he's saying is so true. So so say, you know, that compared to our current system, we will net save $5 trillion, you know, whatever you're comfortable. I'm, I'm sort of comfortable in that 5 trillion until I do a more deep dive into the other one. Mm -hmm. But we'll, we'll even according to the libertarian, we'll net save $2 trillion. Surely we can figure out a way with all the money sloshing around in the system mm -hmm. that we're going to save money so we can afford to spend less. Right. Duh. And that anything, and then duh, of course, federal spending is going to go up. That's not a glitch. That's a feature of single payer. Listen to the word single payer. But all it's doing is replacing money that's already being spent inefficiently.
right in our current system so i don't know if that's like an elevator pitch um focus no, on that's, savings push yeah. back on the pay for question get at least get that in there and say of but course. hey i'll play you know mm -hmm. I'll, I'll accept the challenge i like to say right <laughs> i don't think i should have to play but i'll accept the challenge right we're, we're playing by their roles and yeah it's unfair, but still you have you, you have a nice list of bullet points that they can say. So I think that's very helpful. And I just want to emphasize to viewers that if you like what uh, with um, what Andrea, I almost called you Alexandria, <laughs> is saying here about Medicare for all, it's not just like you only analyze Medicare for all, you do everything else. So please uh, tell us where we can find the rest of your analyses, your website, your YouTube channel, because I think all of this is so fascinating. Okay. All right. So my website is connectthedotsusa.com. So you got to have the USA in there. You can also do connectthedotslady.com. People started calling me, oh, there's the connect the dots lady. <laughs> they see me. So I kind of got that one too. So connectthedotsusa.com. And that's where you can download. I try to make it really user friendly. Um, it's by topic. So you'll see um, topics like, dude, where's my job? Budgets and deficits and debt. Oh my. Um, Care for all saves lives, saves money. So simple. The American healthcare crazy quilt. I also have one on on political framing language that's great for progressive called Spinnervention. Frame yourself or get framed. Um, and so I have the full presentations, and my biggest challenge is trying to keep them up to date. So sometimes mm. those PDFs get a little out of date, but I tell people go first to the single JPEGs where I've got them organized by category and they're all kind of follow in order. And, and then you can grab those. They're free to share online, put them on Facebook, Twitter. You can also come over to my Facebook page and just grab, you know, the graphic and I do a little, a little blurb with it, like a little, I kind of use it as my blog. So that might be an easier way to do it. Um, and then also on Twitter at connect dots USA, because the other one was too long. So connect dots USA, the easiest thing for my YouTube channel, because I knew so I'm like a little grasshopper when it comes to YouTube. <laughs> um, so I don't have a custom URL. So the best yet. So hopefully, I'll you know, people subscribe and click the little bell, hit the mm -hmm. subscribe button so I can get a custom URL. But for now, the easiest way to get there is to go to my website, connectedusa.com, and then go in the lower left corner where my little character of me and you'll see the links for face my Facebook page, Twitter, and my YouTube channel. So all right, well, thank you way to get there. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been super, super insightful. Um, you did something that none of my math teachers have been able to do. <laughs> you got me to understand really complex, large numbers. Um, so thank you so much, Andrea. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Mike. Well, that's all that I got for you guys today. I'm just done talking. <laughs> I don't know how we got through that, but we did. Hopefully the show was enjoyable, even if, you know, maybe towards the end there, I wasn't making much sense because I've just exhausted all of my brain power. <laughs> so before we leave, as usual, I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. And I also want to send a special thank you to all of my guests this week. Uh, I truly appreciate each and every single one of them. And thank you all so much for tuning in. I will see you all in two weeks. Have a good day.